Orangutans have very um, slow metabolisms. Their MO is to conserve energy, so being really crazy and wild and having these facial expressions is not their thing. When they're calm and relaxed, that means they're happy. I think Brawny was the most interested. When they've got this tiny little lift at the edges of their mouth, that's a, a smile. And he was spending a lot of time sitting there smiling and enjoying his drink and really listening and paying attention. It was really fun to watch them and how much they enjoyed it. They were very happy. It made me very happy to see how happy they were. Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. call the February 16th meeting of the Independent Audit Committee to order and it would be appropriate to take the roll. Edie? Jack Blumenthal? Here. Lorraine Knapp? Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Rudy Payan? Here. Edward Schultz? Here. Tim O'Brien? Here. All right, we have a quorum. Uh, next item is approval of the January 19th, 2023 minutes. The minutes are in order. I move that we accept the, <coughs> the minutes. Second. All right, thank you. Any discussion, comments, edits? All in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Great, uh, next item is the report briefing on safety and security of city facilities follow-up. Karis, would you like to introduce yourself and your audit team? Yes, I will. Um, Good morning, auditor and committee members. My name is Karis Epstein, and I was the manager for the safety and security <coughs> of city facilities follow-up report that we're presenting this morning. I am joined at the table today by Sean Weisong, audit manager, and John Michael Steiner, senior auditor. While the original audit was published in June of 2020, the city's response to the pandemic and presence in the emergency operations center 
in both 2020 and 21 greatly impacted their ability um, to respond to our recommendations. So we delayed it until August of 2022. Department managers have also communicated that they are still working to finish implementing the remaining recommendations. We would like to thank staff in the mayor's office, Department of Finance, General Services, Office of Emergency Management, Department of Public Safety and the Fire Department for their assistance throughout our follow-up effort, and members from the mayor's office, emergency management and public safety were unable to make it today due to responsibilities in the operations center and we thank them for their continued um, dedication to the migrant sheltering response. Great. Um, we have a few people here from public safety, general services, and the Department of Finance. Would you like to introduce yourselves before we get started? Sure. And, uh, uh, forgive me for interrupting. And if you have any opening remarks, this would be a good time to do that. Uh, thank you. Uh, good morning. Uh, Cami Jolie with the Department of General Services. I'm the Director of Administration. And uh, thank you for all of the time and effort that uh, was put into this audit. It was quite extensive uh, across many agencies, so we appreciate the time and effort that was devoted to it. Um, Corey DeBar, Division Chief of Fire Prevention for the Denver Fire Department. I want to echo some of those sentiments and at the same time um, understanding that a lot of what we do we have checks and balances and um, I guess for lack of a better term the nice thing about a process like this is to show us where we can make improvements because we don't always have formalized process for that so thank you and Deborah McMillan with the Department of Finance I'm the director of risk management and workers compensation and um, also you know their comments um, I share and I just, you know, appreciate uh, Karis and her team and understanding, you know, it was kind of unprecedented times um, trying to oversee emergency preparedness training when we're in a hybrid environment and a turnover. And so it was, it was good to um, be able to just kind of bounce some of our ideas and things that we were doing off of her as well. So thank you for that. Thank you. Welcome. Shall we begin? We shall. <laughs> At the beginning. <laughs> 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 the responsibility for safety and security of city facilities is decentralized and spread across multiple city agencies, including General Services, Department of Finance's Risk Management Office, Department of Public Safety, and the Office of Emergency Management and Homeland Security. At the time of our audit, the city also had a contract with HSS Incorporated to provide security services at city facilities. The contract with HSS has been, was in place since 2005 and required them to provide security at key city administration buildings, public works facilities, Denver Human Services, Denver Motor Vehicles locations, and for wastewater management. It's worth noting that the city has a new facility contract as of January 2022 with Securitas. As part of our review of safety and security initiatives, we looked at three executive orders Executive Order 6 related to facility security and identification cards, which had last been updated in 2003. We also reviewed Executive Order 65, last revised in 2008, which established citywide responsibility for creating safety standards. And finally, we looked at Executive Order 85, which defined the responsibilities of the Office of Emergency Management and established the city's policy for disaster prevention and response. This order had last been updated in 2011. Our original audit contained three objectives. The first was to determine if the city had clearly defined roles and responsibilities for safety and security. The second was to examine the effectiveness of city practices to ensure the safety and security of facilities, employees, and the public. 
And finally, the third was to analyze if HSS was providing safety and security services in compliance with the contract and in alignment with leading practices. The audit examined physical safety and security as well as security services provided at city facilities to determine whether the safety of city employees and visitors was adequately addressed. We reviewed documentation and data to support practices and internal controls from January 1, 2018 through October 31, 2019. We also reviewed some city initiatives that had been in place since 2003. In our original audit report issued in June 2020, we had three overall findings. First, the city had not sufficiently prioritized the safety and security of city facilities. Second, we found existing safety and security initiatives for city facilities were inadequate. And lastly, we found the city was not always receiving security services in alignment with the contract or leading security practices. We proposed 23 recommendations in June 2020. Of those, the city fully implemented nine, partially implemented seven, and has yet to implement the remaining seven. And before we present the recommendations associated with finding one, I'd like to pause for questions and comments from the committee or the agencies. Questions? No? Should we continue? As shown on page one of the follow-up report, finding one was the city and county of Denver has not sufficiently prioritized the safety and security of city facilities. As stated on page one, recommendation 1.1 to develop a strategic plan was fully implemented. The mayor's office created the interagency facility safety and security plan, which details approaches, goals, and metrics for all agencies involved in citywide facility safety and security. Recommendation 1.2 on page two of the report to define roles and responsibilities was also implemented. The interagency plan says all agencies have a responsibility to ensure facility safety and security and lists some specific roles for certain agencies such as general services and emergency management. Aside from the goals and metrics, the facility safety and security plan also has timelines for achieving goals, lists approaches to monitoring addresses and lists approaches to monitoring and addressing challenges. The plan says this process is overseen by the Denver Security Office and calls for both an annual and formal review and formal review every five years. The plan also allows members involved in safety and security in the city to have a clear understanding of objectives and goals, timelines, and responsibilities. I'll now pause for any questions or comments on the implemented recommendations for finding one. Questions from the committee? All right, as shown on page two of the follow-up report, recommendation 1.3 to update executive orders was partially implemented. The Office of Emergency Management revised Executive Order 85 in September 2020 to include an increased emphasis on citywide plans, such as the Emergency Operations Plan, and removed a section on reporting requirements to the federal government that was no longer relevant. Additionally, the Department of Finance drafted changes to Executive Order 65 which were reviewed and approved by the city's executive order committee in November 2022 and were in the process of being reviewed by the city executive directors. The proposed changes relate to authority and new training requirements for city employees. However, the city has yet to make proposed revisions to executive order six related to badging systems and identification. Until revised, executive order six remains outdated and does not include all city agencies in its list of departments 
with unique badge and credential requirements. It also does not define roles and responsibilities for access, identity, and credential management. And until these changes are made, the city's many systems are still not integrated. I'll now pause for questions or comments on finding one. Questions, comments, any response from public safety, finance, general services? Is anything in the works as far as Executive Order 6 goes? Yes, absolutely. So um, the Facility Safety and Security Committee, this is one of their, um, we have seven different focus areas and access control is one of those. So as Cars had mentioned uh, at the beginning of this, that the city has a very decentralized um, uh, safety and security program. So the intent of that committee is to bring together all of the agencies that manage security uh, for their facilities. And so the committee has come together um, and the conversations are around how do we then uh, update the executive order to actually reflect our operations in the city because we have that decentralized um, system. And so uh, the big part of access control is understanding what we have as a city and then defining the policies and the processes and procedures that are going to actually govern uh, those systems. And so that's what the, the committee is working on now. We've split off into different work groups to focus on some of those areas and access control is a big one. So yes, there is work in progress. Thank you, Rudy. Absolutely. <clears throat> Have you guys had a, an exercise in terms of implementing the, uh, just, uh, just an exercise in terms of safety and security in terms of reenacting a scenario where something might have gone awry at this point? So uh, exercise is a very specific uh, term whenever you're thinking about um, uh, safety City and security. Citywide exercise in terms of safety and security in terms of there is a, a major crisis that occurs outside, let's say a terrorist attack. Uh, sure. You guys So not anything? necessarily an exercise. Uh, again, yeah. that's a very specific term. Uh, and so uh, we have provided uh, significant training, uh, which is now required through the executive order uh, 65 that Deborah can maybe speak about a little bit more. Uh, but training really is, uh, is the first step in that. I would say from an exercise perspective, not necessarily an exercise, but a drill, whenever you think about our evacuation uh, drills that we do manage in our buildings, and that is an annual process. I believe that is required by fire code. More or less looking for an overall drill or exercise for the city, but that's fine. Citywide. Yes. And that's why our focus has been on training of employees. Um, and so one of the changes, as mentioned to um, XO 65, is that we have um, required trainings, but they were not, they were required in new hire orientation and we were pushing them out as required, but it didn't state in our executive order that they were, that they were required. And so that's one of the changes. We've also added um, information for all new employees. As soon as you start, you get, you get this training. So that's a big focus of ours, along with the annual um, fire drills that we do, but just making sure employees are constantly getting that training and those reminders. But a citywide exercise has not been conducted not, this far. Uh, Is there one plan in the future? Just not at different, um, for different facilities. 
looking for locations, but not a citywide exercise. Thank you very much. You answered my question. We have, however, done run, run, hide, and fight in a number of other trainings that, from the perspective of active shooter and a few others that have been implemented. Okay. In certain, yeah, in locations. Exactly. And, and those are kind of uh, building specifically. Thank you very much. Is there a point in time that you think Executive Order 6 will be updated? Yes. <laughs> um, I believe it's, it's defined in our plan. I'd have to look back at the specific date there. Um, but I think we should have a draft within the next six months. Uh, and, of course, that has to go to the, uh, to the committee for review and, and approval at that point. Okay. Thank you. It's not a small task. It's, it is not, and uh, we, have, we have 16 different agencies that participate in the Facility Safety and Security Committee, uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's getting all of the, the buy-in uh, from that committee as well. Thank you. Karis? There, there are roughly 180 buildings, and we were talking about those structures. <laughs> very hard to nail that all down at one time and have one specific style of training because it doesn't work for every structure. All right. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to Sean to present finding two. Thank you, Garis. Uh, so on page four of the follow-up report, finding two says existing safety and security initiatives for city facilities are not adequate. We provided 17 recommendations for finding two. The city fully implemented six, partially implemented four, and did not implement seven. As stated on page four of the report, recommendation 2.3 to amend executive order 65 was fully implemented. The risk management office has proposed changes to the executive order that have been approved by the executive order committee that include a list of safety standards in the memorandum to the order and a requirement that risk management policies and procedures should be posted online. Page five of the follow-up report says that recommendation 2.4 to document roles and responsibilities for emergency response team is fully implemented. The city formed the Facility Safety and Security Committee, uh, chaired by the Denver Security Office, which is charged with implementing the city's interagency facility safety and security plan that was finalized in 2021. The Risk Management and Workers' Compensation Division was given the responsibility to develop and implement the city's emergency response and evacuation program as well as building emergency procedures guides. Pages five and six also show that recommendation 2.5 to implement policies and procedures for emergency response team was also fully implemented. The Risk Management and Workers' Compensation Division developed a policy and procedure for emergency response team training and emergency evacuation drills that includes tracking emergency coordinators and verifying training attendance. The policy and procedures are applicable to city employees in leased locations as well. And as stated on page six of the follow-up report, recommendation 2.6 to implement a certification program was fully implemented. The Denver Fire Department developed a training for facility safety administrators, which is conducted by the department and the Risk Management and Workers' Compensation Division. The fire department began certifying facility safety administrators in August 2022. Page seven of the report shows that recommendation 2.10 to develop employee evacuation and emergency procedure training was fully implemented. The Risk Management and Workers' Compensation Division developed an emergency preparedness training program with three virtual trainings on the city's standard response protocols, active shooter awareness, and emergency response teams and evacuations. Proposed changes to Executive Order 65 
say that each training is required for new employees and emergency evacuation and standard response protocol training are to be required annually in line with the International Fire Code. Finally, page eight of the follow-up report says that recommendation 2.15 to define outcomes and target goals was fully implemented. The Department of General Services defined its intended outcomes and target goals for assessing the notification system's effectiveness in an updated employee notification system policy. Any test is deemed successful if delivered to at least 95% of intended recipients. The city's executive order now includes uh, links to the relevant safety standards, which allows city staff responsible for implementing the order to be aware of other associated safety documents and procedures. And because the Department of Finance also communicated information related to the standards, we have more assurance that the responsible parties have the necessary knowledge needed for safety and security. And by establishing roles and responsibilities and documenting policies and procedures for the emergency response team, people responsible for ensuring safety and security in individual agencies and commuting informa information to staff will be more informed of city safety procedures. And by implementing a facility safety administrator certification program and developing employee evacuation and emergency procedure training, the city can help ensure those responsible for safety as well as all city as all city employees are appropriately trained. It can also help ensure the city is compliant with the fire code. Uh, and finally, by updating its employee notification policy with defined target goals, uh, targets and goals for measuring success, the city will help ensure its employee notification system is operating effectively and people are informed of emergency and evacuation situations. I will now pause for comments and questions from the committee or the departments. All right. I would just like to say that as part of the um, election judge training that I participated in at the last election, I took the uh, active shooter virtual training um, and I thought it was very effective. Kudo. Other questions? Shall we proceed? All right. Um, as shown on page eight of the follow-up report, recommendation 2.1 to prioritize and plan vulnerability assessments was partially implemented. The new Facility Safety and Security Committee identified the completion of assessments as a priority, but as of December 2022, the Denver Security Office was only just conducting its first assessment. The office expected to present it to the committee in January 2023 after our follow-up work was completed. General Services also plans to request more funding in 2024 based on the level of effort required for the assessments. Uh, and as stated on pages 9 and 10 of the report, recommendation 2.7 to ensure certification of facility safety administrators was partially implemented. While the Denver Fire Department implemented trainings for administrators in August 2022, the Fire Department said it was not their responsibility to maintain a list of people who need to be certified. The Department said it is up to General Services and Risk Management to determine who should be a Facility Safety Administrator and who needs to become certified. However, neither department maintained a list of employees who need to take the training to ensure they become certified. And as shown on page 10 of the report, recommendation 2.13, to assess existing identity, credential, and access management as part of completing vulnerability assessments has been partially implemented. General Services inventoried current access control systems and created a vulnerability assessment template uh, specifically for systems in line with leading practices. 
However, the city is yet to complete the assessments, which would allow management to make changes based on identified issues. Now stated on page 11 of the report, recommendation 2.17, to ensure accurate contact information was partially implemented. General Services provided two draft versions of reminder emails to encourage employees to update their contact information in Workday. However, General Services could not provide evidence the emails were actually sent to employees with missing contact information or documentation <coughs> proving contact information had been updated. Without completed vulnerability assessments, including those of identity, credential, and access systems, the city may not be informed of risks at each facility or within each system. And by not maintaining a list of employees required to take facility safety administrator training, employees responsible for facility safety may not be certified as required and informed of safety responsibilities and procedures. And by not actively encouraging employees to update their contact information, there is still a risk that some employees may not receive emergency notifications. I'll now pause here for any other questions from the committee or departments. I have a question. In terms of going back to recommendation 2.1, <clears throat> Did the, uh, after the first vulnerability assessment had taken place, did you guys report out in the January, 20, uh, <clears throat> January 2023 meeting with the Safety and Security Committee, just out of curiosity, did it play, take place? So that was I, last month, should have been reported out on. Were you in that meeting? Okay, sorry. Um, I, I would have to ask that question of our um, committee chair. Um, so, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that that has been totally, completely done, that assessment. So the assessments are extensive, and the first building that was done is a rather large building. It was the uh, MY building, Minori Yusui building. Uh, what we wanted to do was capture a building that would be fairly complex to do to monitor the amount of time that that would take for someone to actually assess the building. So I'm not sure that the final report is done. I believe there may be a draft report, but probably not at this point a, uh, a report out to the committee. Okay. So that process has not been fully completed. Uh, I, would, I would say whenever we were going through um, this, uh, this audit and the conversations that we had with, uh, with the auditors that uh, this is gonna be a, a massive task to undergo in the city. Uh, general services alone, just our portfolio, is 165 buildings. So doing assessments across 165, we understand the importance and the critical nature of getting that done. However, the breadth of the work is, can be slightly overwhelming. So the approach that we were taking as the Denver Security Office in general services is to figure out what is the ask, what is the amount of work that it's gonna take to complete this work. Uh, and so that was why the MY building was chosen. Uh, that assessment has been ongoing. We are learning that this is going to be a really, really heavy lift. Obviously, we have a lot of challenges with resources across the city, both staffing and funding. So the idea is that uh, to create a self-assessment, and we do have a self-assessment, it's actually being digitized right now, so it'll be much easier for folks to 
be able to complete those assessments. Uh, but what we are looking at doing is phasing how the assessments are done with the different agencies that are responsible for their facilities because we have Parks and Rec with all of their recreation centers. Uh, Department of Transportation Infrastructure also has some facilities. So across the city, it's not just general services, but allow folks the ability to complete the self-assessment, but then also go back through the budget process, the annual budget process, and seek supplemental funds for uh, third party to assist as well. Uh, because again, the, the breadth of this task is, is huge. It, it, it's quite large and we learned that through undergoing the self-assessment in the one building that we tried to complete just, just on our own. I appreciate the response because the breadth of it is pretty extensive. It's I mean, massive. It's just, yes, and sir. it's a massive challenge in undertaking. I just was curious more about the first steps taking yep. place and at this point and the assessment that has taken. Absolutely, and we're, we're committed to it. It's just understanding how we are going to reasonably do that and sustain it. Because with, with an assessment, you're not just doing it one and done, right? Security risks change over time. So it's gonna have to be something that is done possibly every five years. Uh, and so understanding what that looks like and understanding the funding uh, that the city is, is able to uh, commit to to that effort among all the other uh, Plus you have things some, that we have in the city. You have a lot of areas that are very soft in terms of targeting, soft Absolutely. targets, and just it's a variety of a, of a package. So yeah, and it's not just conducting the assessment, right? It's it's now once you once you get those recommendations or those findings from the assessment, how do you then fund any of those? Uh, um, cost, right, those expenses, whether, you know, it could be an operational thing, uh, it could be a human sort of aspect that, that is very easy from a training perspective that you can address, but uh, our assumption is a lot of our buildings were built in a much different time. The security risks were, were much different, so capital investments in our infrastructure, what does that look like and how is that going to be funded? So um, it's a task we're willing to undertake, but, but it, this is, is something that we will be working on for many, many years. Thank you. Absolutely. Sir. Uh, in line with that, I guess, <clears throat> you know, originally, and I'm looking at these dates of having been 2021, <coughs> it turns out what you had to bite off, forget about COVID, was a lot more than what people anticipated you were going to bite off in the first place. So I guess my question is, if, if we were gonna come back and do another, you know, take a look at how you're implementing things, um, do you have some, and, and you're talking about, this is kind of like a five-year road trip rotating program um do you have some idea and do you have a schedule let's say you know going over the next five years of what you're going to cover so that i mean uh, I, from your nodding obviously what you said in the first place was somewhat optimistic and now having you know tried to go through this whole thing you've got a better idea of 
what we're talking, what you're talking about. If, if you just establish the schedule uh, that somebody could come by and say in two years, how are you coming on it? I'm talking about a more realistic schedule. Um, and is that in process or Absolutely. is that a fair question? Yeah, it is yeah. is a very fair question, and it's a conversation that we've we've had uh, multiple times. I've had with our chief security officer, uh, and uh, and I know that the committee, the facility safety and security committee, has also had uh, that conversation. So, how how we are anticipating to look at this, as far as from a planning uh, perspective, is to look at our high risk because uh, we do have a list of buildings that are more high risk and then maybe first tier, second tier, third tier, and so on and so forth. And so looking at these assessments in that light. Now, the self-assessment, I think uh, any agency could hit the ground running and start uh, incorporating the self-assessment in there. However, I think for some of our larger buildings that are potentially high, high target, uh, buildings that we would probably look for some funding to uh, have a third party uh, investigate those but the plan is to use sort of that tiered approach or that phased approach uh, to look at those over and hopefully have either self-assessments or third-party assessments done within that five-year uh, sort of uh, time frame well, um, so are you saying you're talking about a five-year period and if you were to take the high-risk assessments that need to be done are you saying that those would be done in five years or the high risk would be done sooner and then if sooner if we were only to look at the high risk uh, what would be a reasonable time frame to anticipate for the high-risk assessments to be completed? Sure, I don't wanna speak out of turn because I know the committee uh, has a group that's actually working specifically on vulnerability assessments. So I don't wanna speak out of turn because they're the ones that are putting this into place. But, um, you know, I would really think that never, some- I never yep. listened to what people say before the but. So now <laughs> we've got sure. the but, let's hear what is really on sure. your mind. Yeah, and I mean, realistically, Realistically, yes, we can do self-assessments in those in those higher risk buildings. Uh, and I think that that would be reasonable to do in the next couple of years. But again, I, I go back to resources. So if, if we are able to, um, to secure resources, to be able to have third parties, uh, to have third party funding to go in and do these, obviously they can get done much quicker. If we are using our existing staffing resources to do that, knowing that they already have full-time jobs and that they're already having, you know, managing programs and, and managing just day-to-day -day functions, that might take a little bit longer. But if we can secure funding, it'll get, it, it'll get done much quicker. Does that answer the question? It doesn't look like it did. Well, no, the, the, <laughs> then the, the big question is, you know, when you talk about if we can secure the funding, and I understand that's out of your hands, Who's responsible for providing the funding? Is that the mayor's office? 
ultimately? Yes, yeah, so we would go through our regular annual budget process. Uh, so the 2024 process is, is coming up here and kicks off in the April timeframe. Uh, so we will be, for the Denver Security Office, we will be asking for funding uh, through the regular, our operational budget. So this wouldn't be a, a capital item or anything like that. We would ask for it uh, through our regular operational budget for uh, professional services. Well, I think to add to that, the, the term, you know, our biggest target hazard is very ambiguous from the perspective of there's a lot of different targets at every one of these buildings that maybe one person that thinks that their building is prioritized is not prioritized over another depending on what we're faced with within the city at any given time. Speaking to the funding piece, we've pulled six people off of their jobs that they normally do within the fire prevention division and created a community risk reduction um, program as well as an outreach program that will uh, assess risk throughout the entire city, uh, not just for city buildings, but that'll be all encompassing. And I think that we'll have a better idea when we have some dedicated people that can look at this of giving you a timeline on the exact target hazards and when we can actually address those. And then also having a system without speaking to what the committee members speak to, but from what I do on a daily basis is we have different buildings throughout the city that we have aligned with different trainings as well as aligned with the different target hazards that are um, addressed for those buildings. So we'll do the same within these 180 roughly structures that we have. So we'll make sure that we address those when we do an overall citywide audit that we work with other public safety members. And then we can work in conjunction with the other groups um, because I feel that sometimes at risk of us taking on all the responsibility, this is not necessarily the wheelhouse of different people where it is for us that have been responding to emergencies in the city for for myself, 25 years. On a different uh, follow-up recommendation, the certification of the facility safety administrators, the fire department doesn't want to keep track of that. I respect that, but who is going to keep track of that? I would not have necessarily put that in there. I didn't answer that question in that way. So that I would say the difficulty with that is that we don't know who gets onboarded or who leaves different facilities. That's the most difficult part. But I think um, what general services and what risk has done an amazing job of is creating kind of a subcategory program with, and I don't want to steal your thunder, but with, um, if there's people missing or there's not people there, there is a program where people know they, they can fill in on those, those different areas. And without having the ability to track all that, we've still tried to overcome that by ensuring that um, we do have other people in place. And just as importantly is part of the reasoning behind that was we couldn't do three years because one of the implemented processes is in a CELA program that we've only had for two years. So we couldn't say, yeah, we've been doing that for three years because it's not possible because we haven't been collecting the data for that long. So I think that's kind of a better way to answer that question. And we are tracking that. We have recently done even another FSA. Um, we did classes on the 9th, 10th, and 11th of January, um, 10 more people. We do have a licensing programs within uh, the fire prevention division for contractors and everyone else. And we also now have that system in place that's tracking all the FSA as well. So we do have some tracking of the licensure. The difficult part is that we don't know who gets onboarded or who leaves these different facilities. And during COVID, it was incredibly difficult to know that. So. I think that better speaks to that sentence, but I would love for that to be removed. <laughs> <laughs> Who put it in? 
We have no. a lot of people that got that, was, that interview. That was, that was yeah. rhetorical. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a big interview. <laughs> and I will just add to that that when we were working on who should be certified, we had a lot of discussions with our facilities team, and we all agreed that the facility superintendent, um, and we had those tracked, but then when we were asked by the auditor, we suddenly realized we were not tracking um, who it would be that was not part of a facility managed building. So that's where some of those gaps were that we're addressing. Can't Workday help keep track of this? Do you use Workday? <laughs> <laughs> Fair question. Religiously, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm thinking, you know, when someone leaves uh, employment with the city, you know, you have to turn in your key, you have to turn in your badge, things like that. And there, there's a checklist of things that we go through that HR goes through. And this could be one of them if you're the facility safety administrator that you are notified or your office is notified. I mean. Is it just that they, they haven't organized reports for you to, to address this kind of thing? I think that's part of it. And also um, there's some there's some firewalls in place that we don't always talk to one another within these groups for that for that term. So I think it would be difficult to, um, and not, I mean, we can do it, but to your point, it's difficult for something that, if someone does leave, um, how are we going to be notified for that? And we'd have to set that up in Workday, and it's, it's not always an easy task. Um, but yes, certainly, I think that we, we can address that. with finding two uh, as stated on page 11, uh, 11 recommendation 2.2 to document implementation rationale has not been implemented the city has made some changes to facility safety and security practices since our original audit for example there is now a virtual tool for emergency response coordinators to use to check in during drills and emergency situations however those changes were not made based on the results of completed vulnerability assessments Um, and I sit on page 12 of the follow-up report, recommendation 2.8, to review and approve emergency procedures guides was not implemented. The Denver Fire Department reviews building emergency procedures guides every three years when a new international fire code is adopted. Because the 2021 international fire code had not yet been fully adopted, the fire department had not begun reviewing emergency procedures guides. Once it is adopted, they said they would begin reviewing, reviewing all 181 building emergency procedures guides. And on page 13 of the follow-up report, recommendation 2.9 to track fire drill data was not implemented. While the Denver Fire Department fills out a, a record of fire drill form, writes a letter detailing a grade of pass, fail, or needs improvement after each fire drill is completed, and stores the letters for three years, they do not track the results of these letters. The fire department said they could not implement a tracking mechanism without a dedicated program to identify and prioritize local risks but the department was denied funding for the program in 2023. Even without the funding for the program, the Denver Fire Department could still use resources it already has, such as other data tracking software or spreadsheets to track fire drill data and results to identify trends and opportunities for training. And as shown on page 13, recommendation 2.11, to centralize identity credential and access management has not been implemented. General Services identified all city and county buildings the Denver Security Office oversees access management systems for. However, there are still 13 other systems that General Services will need to coordinate administrative users to ensure safety and security. 
a group within the Safety and Security Committee is working on finalizing proposed changes uh, to related Executive Order 6, but they have not been completed. Similarly, Recommendation 2.12 on page 14 to update Executive Order 6 is not implemented. The Facility Safety and Security Committee needs to work with individual agencies to develop a detailed profile of each system before it can make informed decisions about proposed changes to the order. And Recommendation 2.14 on page 14 uh, to update Executive Order, uh, sorry, Recommendation 2.14 on page 15 to develop policies and procedures for identity, credential, and access management is not implemented because the city still needs to cent centralize management over systems and update Executive Order 6. However, the Denver Security Office says it has other procedures which will serve as a model when the committee is ready to develop and document policies and procedures. And as stated on page 15 of the report, recommendation 2.16, to develop contact information policies and procedures was not implemented. General Services was not able to provide policies and procedures because the employees responsible for those documents recently left the city. Uh, so without completed vulnerability assessments, the city continues to implement new safety and security processes in reaction to events and not because of identified risks. If the fire department and city are not reviewing building, building emergency procedures guides, they may not be current and reflect processes in line with employee training or the fire code. Additionally, staff and contractors may be misinformed on appropriate drill and evacuation procedures due to outdated and inaccurate information. Without a formal process to track fire drill data, the fire department is still not able to identify trends related to evacuation and fire drills to make informed decisions regarding training for city employees. Additionally, Executive Order 6, related to identity, credential, and access management, remains outdated. Uh, and finally, without documented policies and procedures that meet leading practices, employee information in Workday may not be as up-to-date as possible, and processes for monitoring and updating information may be lost if responsible parties leave the city. <coughs> I will now pause here for any comments from the committee or departments. Questions from the committee? Um, it seems like Executive Order 6 is central to really completing all of this. And it's not that you're rejecting the recommendations. It's really a t an issue of timing. Is that fair? It is. And, and again, I go back to the fact that we are very de decentralized. And so, um, you know, making sure that we understand each of the systems why we have separate systems, what is the need, is there the ability to have uh, fewer systems, uh, access control systems in the city uh, that are managed more centrally. Obviously, you know, the airport, uh, our safety partners, they have very specific needs for having uh, a separate system and managed separately. Uh, from what we do in general services. However, there are smaller systems that are throughout the city. And so uh, it was a large undertaking to just inventory what was out there, but now we need a more detailed analysis as far as what those systems are. But I think we can, um, through the Facility Safety and Security Committee, come to some consensus about uh, those uh, changes to Executive Order 6. But you are correct. Um, there are, I think, three or four uh, different recommendations that are kind of a, a domino effect uh, to XO6 being, being updated. Uh, 
<clears throat> let me ask this question, <clears throat> and it may be an unfair question of you. Um, on, on a number of things you've talked about, you talk about <clears throat> the decentralization, which impedes what you're doing or makes it more difficult. And I guess the question I have is, do you think somebody ought to take a look at whether things are too decentralized in general in this area um, is a general business proposition? Or do you think it's just affecting your area and when you look at everything else, it seems to be okay? It just... I think that's a very fair question. Uh, and so I'll, I'll give you sort of my my thoughts and I would yeah, and I recognize that yep. by the way it's your thoughts yes and my a, opinion on, not on necessarily the, matter. the official position of, Absolutely. The, of your group okay so so we have had some conversations about this and I think there are some very um, positive things that can come from a decentralized system and uh, meaning that, you know, whenever we look at uh, potentially security, say in a, a courthouse versus a rec center, and you know, those are very, very different, they operate very, very differently. Uh, it does make sense that, you know, someone that is boots on the ground in a rec center would uh, have security, safety and security protocols in place for that particular building based on that customer base and uh, based on that specific facility. So it would be quite challenging as a city to have, I believe, one, uh, one centralized sort of approach to that. And how we looked at that, because we had a lot of conversation about it as we were creating the strategic plan alongside the, the mayor's office is that um, to keep sort of the same general decentralized feel, but to bring together this committee of, I, I believe it's 16 different agencies that are really managing and maintaining safety and security for the city. Uh, and that way we have a, uh, a committee approach to how we can come together on the common themes, but allow for some uh, independence as well uh, to operate and function appropriately with those uh, with our different types of facilities because they are so can be so different in many respects but using that committee to to come to a common ground on things that we need to agree on uh, for instance access control uh, some of the training that uh, Devron and the risk management uh, folks are doing but we have had some of that conversation but that you know that that is my opinion I think the the committee is a good, um, a good step in the right direction, but certainly, you know, I think there are areas for improvement and additional conversation in the future. Let me ask you this: um, when you talk about a committee of 16 people, you know, you can get into a situation where the committee is so large that it becomes, you know, and, and you know, listening <clears throat> to what you're saying. There, there's a lot of diversity here. Is there some, you might want to think about reorganizing the committee into a few subcommittees with groups or whatever, but it just strikes me as 
the group may be too large in and of itself, the way it works to be as effective as it might be if you reorganize that a little bit. Absolutely, point well taken. Um, so we do a couple of things that I think help with the, the size of the group is while we don't call them subcommittees, we call them work groups, uh, that they're focused on uh, the different areas that were outlined in the, in the auditor's report. And so those different focus areas that we need to, uh, need to have some movement on. And so the subcommittee or subcommittees will come back and uh, make recommendations to the larger group. Uh, that said, there is a very formalized voting process that's in place uh, that we have identified through the strategic plan. So whenever there is an action, a recommendation, something on the floor that needs to be moved on, uh, there's a voting process. So we don't get bogged down in the, you know, one person saying no and, and it kind of dies on the floor. Okay, we've got one more finding to get through. And John Michael, are you going to do this one? On page 16, finding three states, the city is not always receiving security services in line with contract requirements or leading practices. We provided three recommendations for finding three. The city fully implemented one and partially implemented two. As stated on page 16, recommendation 3.3 to develop well-defined contract performance measures was fully implemented. General Services updated security training, staffing, and reporting requirements now align with leading practices. In addition, General Services implemented a quarterly scorecard process to monitor the security contractor, which requires performance improvement plans for lower scores. By updating training and staffing requirements and evaluating performance on a regular basis, the city can help ensure security services are effectively staffed and monitored. I'll now pause for any questions or comments before moving on to the partially implemented recommendations. As stated on page 17, recommendation 3.1 to develop a contract monitoring program was partially implemented. General Services made improvements to its contract monitoring process by developing a quarterly scorecard procedure. However, contract monitoring staff are not using the scorecards consistently and general services did not document uh, specific procedures for completing the form or provide formal training. <coughs> As stated on page 18, recommendation 3.2 to update post orders was partially implemented. The new post orders, for example, now include some uh, position-specific policies and procedures that were missing in the original audit. Although the updated post orders are an improvement, certain policies and procedures are still missing. For example, emergency procedures are still missing for some of the buildings. Unless staff are properly trained on how to consistently complete security evaluations, it's possible gaps in security may go unresolved. Without complete policies and procedures, the city's post orders remain insufficient to ensure the security provider fully complies with the contract uh, and leading practices. That concludes our presentation and we'll now open the floor for any other comments or questions. Questions, any closing comments from the auditees? I would just like to extend my appreciation and, and we always appreciate you coming in and, and assisting us. We know that there's so much work to do here. 
We have a wonderful partnership with um, General Services, the Fire Department, the Police Department, Office of Emergency Management, um, OHR, whose training team pivoted to prioritize these emergency preparedness trainings that we wanted to be a requirement for all city employees. So a, a lot of work has been done. Um, and, you know, again, in this very fluid environment where we'll train everyone on what to do and then everyone goes home. And now we're in a hybrid environment and we have to retrain and, you know, just trying to, trying to work through um, what, what ideal training looks like and, and how do we get people out of a building in the event of an emergency when it's, it's, it's a lot, there's a lot of creativity that's gone into it, but um, acknowledging how much work has been done and will continue to be done. Thank you. I think we all appreciate the, the scope of what you have in front of you and the importance of it, too. So thank you very much. All right. We have another presentation about our audit analytics update. I'd like to ask Chris Wilson. So this is our audit analytics team headed by Chris Wilson. I am regularly um, would say that they exceed my expectations in terms of what they're doing. So of course my expectations grow and I ask them <laughs> to do more and, and they do respond very well. So Chris, I'll turn it over to you to introduce the team and uh, begin the presentation. Great. Thank you. So good morning, everyone. We are here to present the semi-annual audit analytics update. <clears throat> the team is comprised of Nicholas Hernan, Daniel Summers, Heather Berger, and myself, and we are under the direction of Don Wiseman. We'll be providing updates in four areas today. In each of these areas, we focus on our work that took place from July 2022 through the end of the year. First, we'll summarize the updated results of our continuous audit and risk analytics. Second, we'll provide updates on two risk assessments we worked on. Third, we'll discuss our data-related support we've provided to audit teams. And lastly, we'll highlight a few examples of how we've shared our experience in analytics with both the wider audit community and internally. As a reminder, continuous auditing allows us to analyze potential risks by looking at large sets of financial and process data throughout the year. We share our results internally to auditor's office leadership to help inform whether an area warrants further testing. This slide summarizes the specific areas covered in the current update period. Overall, our analytics looked through about 1.3 million records and covered five different areas. While we are able to look at large amounts of records, our analytics in many cases are designed to be indicators of risk. 
meaning an analytic may flag transactions that aren't actually issues in the data based on the city's fiscal rules or other criteria. Because of this, to help us make more informed recommendations in internally to management, we've developed a new process this time around to learn a little more about our flag transactions. In some cases, this involved taking a small sample of transactions to learn whether each had support documentation and was directly tied to a city expense. And in others, this involves summarizing the results using key fields such as agency or cost center to identify more specific trends in the data. I'll now discuss the updated results for our purchase card analytics. For this area, we use a composite model that aggregates results of six risk flags. Our risk flags include checking for things like even dollar purchases, split transactions that may exceed the city's spending limit, or purchases made at pass-through vendors such as Amazon or Venmo. We applied these flags to all purchase card transactions made from January 2018 through December 2022. Of the roughly 331,000 total transactions, there were about 9,000 that triggered two or more risk flags. On this slide, we show the changes in average risk score across time. The score is based on the number of flag transactions compared to the total transactions made each month. We've zoomed in on the y-axis showing the score to highlight some variations. Overall, the risk score hovers between 0.73 and 0.83. We do, however, see a gradual increase in score since the mid-2021 time period. Given this gradual increase, we took a sample of transactions with two or more flags to learn more. For all transactions sampled, we found each had docu documentation justifying the expense. Therefore, we don't recommend any action be taken in this area, but we will continue to monitor purchase cards in our next update. I'll now turn to our update for travel card spending. Yes. One quick question. You said that there was two, at a minimum, two uh, flags that surfaced and brought your attention. What would be the most common areas in terms of those red flag indicators yeah. in terms of the purchasing card program? So in this period, at least, the, the most common flags that were triggered were the top spender flag and then the um, flag associated with pass-through vendors. Um, and in our sample, that, that, laid, that played out as well. So in the sample, each transaction that we looked at had at least one of those two flags um, present. And so... And how do you define a top spender? So we define it by 80% um, of the transactions being associated with 20% of the um, possible people spent um, having a purchase card. Okay. And those, so those people are the top spenders? The right. 20%. Exactly. Yeah. And we look at that just based on sheer volume, um, the risk being that since they're doing <clears throat> the, the most spending, we want to keep our eyes on, on those in case there's an issue, then there could be a wider issue to, to look at. Yeah, um, I know you're looking for the outliers and stuff and in terms of the top spenders that you were spending, but I was more or less associating that with the amount of money being spent in terms, I understand your percentage, you know, it's the top 20 that are spending more like 80% of the budget. Right. So that's what you're focusing on. So large purchases of that nature. Exactly. Yeah. So, and to, to add some context, um, of the transactions with two or more risk flags, that was associated with about 3.4 million in total spending. Um, 
I don't have the number off oh, right okay. now on for for those that triggered the top spender flag, but overall the ones with two or more flags, um, 3.4 million. Thank you, Chris. Oh, no worries. Fascinating. Um, so you're showing an increase, and you say there's an increase in the risks that you're finding, the mm -hmm. risk score, but you've done a sample and said, actually, things are fine. We're not finding anything. So right. what is increasing the risk then? So the risk score. So that, those are the transactions that were. Um, but why? I get, I, get what's, I get the numbers behind it, but what I'm wondering is why are there more top spenders now than there were, you know, two years ago? Right, so I don't have that specific cause. No. Um, based on our analytics, we just kind of look at the numbers, the, the indicators. Yeah, What's exactly. What's your gut telling you? Or what um, you so, well, one hunch is, is specifically within that, this last six-month period, there are more purchases being made through Amazon. So overall, the proportion of transactions through P cards that has increased, and it's tripping the flag associated with the pass-through vendors because that's one of the vendors you know we put on the list. Um, so that that's more than a hunch. That is actually in the data. However, I don't know the underlying cause um, related to the top spender um, oh, from from our results. Isn't it? Shopping through Amazon. And yes. Oh, for sure. Various vendors. That and Amazon. Did Absolutely. Absolutely, that's, that's definitely more common. And that's why we thought it was especially important. So given this increase, we wanted to have some assurance that just because the risk level seems to be rising, um, these are valid purchases um, and therefore not warranting any further investigation, at least for the time being. Of course. So in terms of travel card spending, our analytics looks at um, and flags potential non-travel related items. We use the credit cards merchant category codes to flag codes that don't explicitly appear related to travel spending. As we highlight here on this slide, 94% of the overall spending is associated with codes that are clearly travel related. However, we do note an increase associated with potential risky spending since the pandemic period ended starting in late 2021. And this trend is visualized here on this next slide. So this graph shows the city's total travel card spending by month grouped by level of risk. Focusing on the last six months of 2022, we see December, the farthest bar on the right-hand side, is largely responsible for this slight increase in high-risk spending. And again, in this area, given this increase associated with the high-risk merchant category codes, we look through a sample of transactions from this group. For every sample item, we found evidence that the expense was in fact related to travel costs based on the support documentation provided in Workday. In preparation for our next analytics update, we can use these results to look at the codes we previously considered higher risk just based on their descriptions and perhaps move those down into the lower risk category. Therefore, similar to purchase cards, we don't recommend any action on this analytic, but we'll continue to monitor the results in our next update. What are some of the higher risk codes that you Yeah, so, so a few examples are codes that have the description of computers or, um, yeah, I mean, that code, since it's not explicitly travel related, will get flagged when it's used <coughs> on a travel card. However, 
you know, someone could be traveling for a conference and have to um, purchase something related to computers that gets, that trips that um, code. It is kind of curious that the biggest little red box there is December. Yes. Usually in December, that's when they try to spend all the, whatever they're projecting as a fund balance. Isn't that so? Is that? Oh, well, that's a better thought than buying Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs> These are travel purchases. <laughs> well, except, well, you how restrictive traveling? are those? Yeah, does that, does that mean that, for instance, um, uh, codes like um, a convenience store or a, um, a grocery store is a high risk in exactly. that category? And it's not restricted, though, right? It's right. not prohibited. And, and in our definition, th those would be examples that we've currently categorized as higher risk ones. Things like department stores would be prohibited from use in a travel card, right? Or not? Do, do the travel cards have any restrictions as far as they the do. type of merchandise? Yeah, it, I mean, it has to be related to travel um, or related to... Um, I'm sorry, I didn't ask that very well. I'm sure it's supposed to be, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> is that... Actually, when you go to use it, you Yeah, get at the rejected. state, you, get, you, you would get rejected if you tried to use a travel card at, I think, a C-store. I'm not, maybe, maybe it was a department store. Um, I, th I think some MCC, or merchant category codes, yeah. are, are restricted and, and <coughs> declined upon um, attempting that. Okay. Um, so our, what, we, what we've categorized in the analytic is the ones that go through, but just don't ha but, have that explicit description of travel or hotel airfare. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I would suspect like liquor purchases. Um, exactly. Those are, those are prohibited. I mean, that's strictly prohibited. Definitely. Yes, definitely. Um, the only thing I want to add to this conversation, because <laughs> I, I rarely get to add anything to this conversation, is um, with merchant accounts and the codes. So back in banking, back in the day when a merchant came in to open up a merchant account, it was up to the bank to determine the code, right? So and that gets pushed down further and further, you know, down to lower level employees. Point in case, I just got my Chase year end where I spent all my money on my credit card last year and being a banker, I'm going through line by line by line. <laughs> and it is crazy how a donation that I made shows up under grocery store or, you know, so do you find much Health of that, club. that the merchant codes themselves are wrong and the charge itself might be legit. Yes, exactly. So this sampling effort that we just performed is very helpful for that exact reason um, because the descriptions don't always align with what is actually being purchased. So for instance, in, in the sample um, that we tested, 11 of, of, of um, the transactions were conference regis registration, which is allowed um, to use a travel card for that. However, the codes were all over the place um, in terms of the, the data. So that's something that we'll now use moving forward and seeing if there's specific codes that, like I said, that we should bring down to that lower level risk group because we know they're being used consistently for. It is inaccurate going in. It doesn't make your job any easier. Right, exactly. I was, I was very surprised because I just would have thought, and since my, my years of programming those damn machines to make the codes, that there'd be a better system, but it was crazy, the errors that I found just personally, so. Definitely, yeah, thank you. I'll now pass it off to Daniel to discuss our analytic regarding expense reports. Thanks, Chris. 
Um, the city uses expense reports to reimburse employees when they make business-related purchases using their own money. We use a composite model here also to monitor these three different risk indicators. The top spender risk indicator tracks employees who receive the largest cumulative amount of money from the city through reimbursements. Benford's law looks at the first digit in a group of transactions to see if their distribution aligns with what is expected and flags transactions that don't follow a natural distribution. And the even dollar risk indicator flags transactions with a total amount that is divisible by 10. Our analysis for, what's that? Could you give a capsule description of Benford's law? <laughs> yeah. Because there is a test, and we want to make sure we pass. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. So Benford's law <laughs> is really this idea that if no, you look I at a... No, I want to know about it. Yeah. Oh, no, to, And I have to say, I yeah. think every year you guys explain this. Thing. Every year I'm like, every six months what's Benford's law? Oh, yeah, no, happy to do it. Um, so Benford's law understands that if you look at a group of naturally occurring transactions, the first significant digit of each of those transactions is going to fall along a like, pretty regular distribution. So you'd expect to see the number one a certain amount of times, number six a certain amount of times, et cetera. And so when you look at the first significant digit of transactions and you see that a certain digit is appearing in an irregular way, so maybe there's more sixes than you expect, it's just an indicator of possibly something to look into. And so that's uh, what we do here is we just look at the natural distribution and if a certain digit um, appears out of alignment, then it's flagged for this specific risk. I want to say that Benford um, established this law in the 1800s at some point. Is that correct? Yeah. Been used yeah, for quite some time. Quite old. <laughs> yeah. Our analysis for the update included about 50,000 expense report line items. This slide shows a breakdown of the items that were flagged by at least one of our risk indicators. As you can see, the top spender risk is the largest group and it contains about 32,000 flagged transactions. When the circles overlap, that means the transactions triggered more than one risk flag. For example, there are only 430 transactions that triggered all three risk flags. We analyzed the most recent six months of records to look for any changes compared to the last time we analyzed these risks. In the last six months, we found the number of transactions flagged by the even dollar and Benford's Law risk indicators decreased, while the number of transactions flagged by the top spender risk indicator increased about 1%. At this point, these changes do not appear significant enough to warrant a full audit, but we will continue to monitor these trends. Any questions before we move on? I do have one question. In terms, when you come up with 430 incidents where it involves all three factors, does anybody in the shop take the next step and say, well, let me look into a sample of whatever and see how it plays out, just out of curiosity? So, so we, we, we've started incorporating that practice this time around. However, we didn't for this specific area, given that decrease um, overall compared to that, the last period. Um, but for instance- You answer my question. I just, oh, okay. okay. But, you know, Great. if you want to give me an embellish on the, on the answer, that's fine. You know? I was just going to add that, um, for instance, in, in the next period, if we do see an increase compared to what we're reporting at now, that might then trigger us to say, okay, we're going to make sure we have enough time to sample, to do a more sample. from that area as well. I'll be discussing continuous audit analytics related to supplier invoices and purchase orders. 
In response to supplier invoices, the city creates physical checks and holds those checks to be picked up by a supplier. We track both the number of checks held for pickup and the sum of money associated with held checks. In the second half of 2022, the number of checks held for pickup increased compared to the first half of the year. The sum associated with those held checks increased substantially in the second half of 2022. As this graph illustrates, there has been a significant spike in the sum of money associated with held checks, reaching a peak of $13.2 million in October 2022. The number of checks held for pickup has also increased significantly, with 181 held checks created in August of last year. Throughout 2020 and 2021, the number of checks held for pickup seldom reached 100 per month. However, the second half of 2022 saw that number exceed 150 each month from August through the end of the year. To provide some context related to this risk, in the second half of 2022, 43% of supplier invoices were paid using a check. The other 57% of supplier invoices were paid using ACH payment, an electronic funds transfer payment method. Of those check payments, which again comprise uh, 43% of uh, supplier invoices in the second half of 2022, about 4% were held for pickup. We performed an analysis of this uh, increased risk level. Much of the increase in the sum of money held in checks is attributable to several multi-million dollar checks issued in the second half of 2022. In the first half of that year, the largest amount held in a check was $1,035,000. In the second half of the year, there were three held checks with amounts of $7.9 million, $5.3 million, and $4.2 million. In relation to the increase in the number of checks held for pickup in the second half of the year, we found specific cost centers tied to this increase. However, the risk is not concentrated in a single cost center, and we found no pattern across time compared to the prior periods. This work has been documented and will be available for use in future analytics and related audits. The next section of this presentation will focus on risk analytics pertaining to purchase orders. A purchase order is a documented authorization to acquire goods or services from a vendor or supplier. A range of analytics are applied to purchase order transactions, including analyses of unauthorized purchases, duplicate transactions, even dollar purchases, and shipping addresses associated with purchase orders. We perform continuous auditing related to three types of unauthorized purchases. After the fact orders refer to instances where a valid procurement mechanism exists, but the purchase was made prior to the issuance of a purchase order. Fiscal rule violations involve purchases under $10,000 made without a valid procurement mechanism, and code violations refer to purchases over $10,000 made without a valid procurement mechanism. What's the difference between the fiscal rule violation and a code violation? Just the amount of money involved. I think oh. a code violation is going to be when it's over $10,000. Oh. Uh, that, that, that's yes. the only difference, I think. Yeah. The number of unauthorized purchases has been increasing over the past two years. That increase is evident across all three types of unauthorized purchases examined. By far, the most significant increase is related to fiscal rule violations involving purchases under $10,000 made without a valid procurement mechanism. There were 44 fiscal rule violations in October of 2022. That is the highest number of monthly violations identified 
since the analytics team began tracking. We investigated this increase in fiscal rule violations and identified cost centers and, and suppliers associated with the increase. However, the increased risk uh, is not concentrated in a single cost center or in relation to a specific supplier, and we found no pattern across time compa compared to the prior period. Uh, this work has been documented and will be available for use in future analytics and related audits. Um, with this increase, you know, what you're saying is you're not sure it's any given cost center. So what but, we... Oh, but is this indicating some kind of sloppiness at some level that's causing this to go up? I, I, and, and you have to investigate it. But it begs the question, I guess, mm -hmm. is... Uh, yeah, so um, I think it's important to uh, really... Uh, think about the process involved. So when um, a purchase order is submitted to a buyer who's, who, you know, who is going to eventually ac acquire those goods for, for the city, um, once they receive uh, a purchase order, and I have it here, is um, first of all, they're going to check if it had cost center approval, which is a, a very important control. And if it doesn't have that, it's not, the, the good, it, it's not going to continue uh, along. Uh, you know, that, that's going to be stopped there. Um, however, um, if it has cost center approval, um, it can still have, uh, again, be marked as an unauthorized purchase. Um, so as I, uh, uh, as I said, with the after the fact purchases refer to situations where there is a, a master purchase order in place and it's just that the, um, the, uh, uh, that the issuance of the purchase order um, is, sorry, I have the definition here somewhere. Yeah, if a contract already exists, um, then the purchase is marked as an after-the-fact um, uh, purchase. However, um, if no contract exists, then um, a, a UNA form is completed by the buyer. So it gets, uh, the purchase order gets created even though there may have been issues with the with no master purchase order being in place. However, the uh, buyer will then complete a form and uh, return, you know, let, let the purchaser know who, uh, who issued that purchase order, that there was an, uh, an issue with that. Um, and so, uh, I suppose in, in response to your question, yes, I think it's fair to say that um, looking at these numbers, a better job could be done in uh, 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 complying with the uh, policies and procedures. But essentially, the, the city is aware of this when it happens, um, and there are controls to, to monitor those when there's an invalid purchase so mechanism. How is that? Nope. Of it when it happens. Yeah. What does that so, mean? So, so all of these issues that you're seeing, the city is fully, fully aware of these, and I think it's important to note that there are controls in place. So, particularly, and I think a good example is when a code violation um, is found. So, a purchase above ten thousand dollars that does not, ha it doesn't comply with the policies and procedures in place. The director of the agency will have to sign to ensure to, to complete that purchase order to make sure it goes through and the goods are acquired. They're going to go back to whoever issued it and say there are issues here, and they need you know they're going to need approval from somebody above that from the from the head of that department to comply. So all of these purchase all of these issues are, are they're they're documented and and they're corrected in in step if that makes sense. 
they get submitted to the buyers, the buyers understand that there's an issue, they correct the issue, they create a form marking that this, there, were, there was an unauthorized purchase issue here. Um, and uh, again, I think uh, there is training provided uh, from, from that in, in an attempt to stop future unauthorized purchases from occurring. But so meanwhile, the purchase has already been made. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's by definition, it's unauthorized <coughs> until later on they get the purchase <coughs> order completed. Correct, and that, uh, correct. So, yes, everything gets corrected um, and there are good controls in place, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say, looking at this process. However, it is still, obviously there are policies and procedures in place and it shouldn't, you, you know, ideally it wouldn't come to, the, to an intermediary to step in and, and make sure you know that all the documentation has been required or, or whatever is is needed for, um, you know, to fully comply with the purchasing policies and procedures. So, if I'm reading this chart, so the last three months in October, November, December, there's about 10 cases that were looked at. And so from what I'm understanding, at all 10 cases, although there was a code violations, after the fact, someone came back to approve the transaction that took place. Is my reading, or my reading the chart rate and also your interpretation. Yes, that is that is correct. That these these purchases all went through, um, and and again, the city is going to be aware of all of these um, as as a form would have been completed. And again, the idea being, I think that training is to be provided afterwards. And obviously, um, that's reassuring. <laughs> but I think it is fair to say it's it's important to note as well on the risk here is that there is a risk. Obviously, when policy procedures aren't followed, it's it's never good. But also there is a risk that in terms of the purchase ordering process that the city needs to make sure that they're getting the best price that they can for these goods. And I, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that when any of these issues are arising is, is there is an increased risk that the city is going to be not getting the, uh, the best price that they can for, for the goods. Yeah, I just have to say I think that the um, assumption that everything's okay because the paperwork was completed eventually is not a good, uh, a good assumption um, because if, in my experience that's like papering over the mistake and whether or not the purchase was valid it can only be um, evaluated before it's made. If it's already made what are they going to do? They're going to they're make a purchase order because they've already got the stuff. Right? I mean, legitimize it. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we don't have to I, I go into that. I mean, there's nothing at that point to do. But <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just like I don't think the the conclusion that everything is is okay because training's going to happen is the right conclusion. Well, and that's fair, and that's why we do monitor this every yeah. um, as part of our continuous <coughs> audit analytic update. Um, however, we, we just want to make or bring additional context in about <coughs> the controls when these issues do arise. Um, so from our perspective, that's just what we wanted to um, provide for you all when you see this uptick. Yeah, in, I'll be um, real curious to see what the next six months do because so it's could you provide uh, some information about how many purchase orders go through that are not out of compliance with either the code or fiscal rule? Yeah, we. we I don't think, do we have, I, I don't we don't have, have that right now, but we can supply perfection. it. Um, because yeah, the, the vast majority are not going. Well, this is only 400 or you so. You don't have a ballpark that. figure of? There's probably a million. 
no. or ten thousand. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> What's the range? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very specific number to look into that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's even. I just think this. <laughs> So we have the number for purchase order transactions, yeah. and that's what. So and that's around um, two hundred fifty thousand. I think it was on the one of the first slides. Oh, okay. Um, well, we're it's not, not higher. Excuse me. Was that two hundred fifty thousand no. dollars or two hundred two hundred fifty thousand transactions? Transactions. So I guess the question that I have, and you may not have it handy at the moment, but it's numbers of transactions. But the question is. What's happening in terms of dollars? Sure. In other words, looking at the chart, you've got numbers of transactions. I guess if the next time around we could get it in dollars. Certainly. We well, can, all of these are under 10,000. That's the By definition. No, but what's the total dollars mm -hmm. that are involved with that? That's information we can provide in the next step. Yeah, that's what I meant. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and for additional context, the, of the total transactions, it's uh, of purchase order transactions, it's around $9.6 billion. So it's, it's a lot of money. Um, well, that, that was associated with was, the total. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. $9.6 billion? Yeah, I believe for, um, for, yeah, we'll talk for about, our period mm -hmm. from 2018 to 2022. Nice. Budget. Well, the general fund's around 1.6 billion. So, so well, if we, we could get it next time, it'd be I think, fine. I think I mean, we'll, we'll we don't need to belabor it, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. But I would like to, if the next time we could see, you know, what we're talking about in dollars as well as. Definitely. Yeah, if you don't mind. That, that's the same number we'll be reporting when we talk about shipping addresses, too, is over the last five years, it's $9.2 uh, billion. That's in the safe category. The risk category is much smaller. Duplicate transactions refer to any pair of transactions with identical payment amounts and similar supplier names. Uh, we perform continuous auditing to identify duplicate transactions present in purchase order, purchase card, and travel card data. The number, uh, in the second half of 2022, the number of potential duplicate transactions has decreased with a reduction in the risk associated with duplicate transactions between purchase orders and purchase cards, and also a reduction in the risk associated with duplicate transactions between purchase cards and travel cards. Even dollar transactions involve payments that are evenly divisible by 1, 10, 100, 1,000, and so on, depending on the data being analyzed. In relation to city purchase order transactions, we focus on transactions evenly divisible by 100. It is important to note that the presence of round numbers in purchase order data is not a direct indication of abnormal or suspicious behavior. However, when paired with complementary analytics and a strong understanding of the data being analyzed, even dollar analysis can be an extremely powerful tool in the continuous auditing process. Since the beginning of 2018, about 10% of city purchase order transactions are evenly divisible by 100. In the second half of 2022, the total number of even dollar transactions decreased. Uh, any questions on even dollar purchases? 
I will now hand it over to Heather Berger to discuss the continuous auditing applied to shipping address data in city purchase order transactions. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, so this, we're still talking about purchase orders here, um, just specifically the shipping addresses that are in the data included in a purchase order. Um, and so the analytic that we created in this area uh, compares the purchase order shipping addresses to city-owned or operated facility addresses. This allowed us to separate the data into two distinct populations, shipping addresses that match verified city addresses and shipping addresses that do not match city verified addresses. Those that do not match comprise the risk population. In the last five years, 99% of all purchase order transactions were associated with a verified city address. This accounts for $9.2 billion worth of spending, which is also 99% of all spending in that same time period. This leaves the risk population to make up only 1% of all transactions, which is a slight improvement from our last update. However, it still adds up to about $52 million. So we were interested in learning more to assess the level of risk. To do this, we decided to take a statistical sample of the full population and assess two separate attributes. First, whether the address corresponded to a city facility. And second, whether the expense associated with the purchase order um, was related to city operations. We found false positives in every transaction we sampled, meaning our analytic flag transactions that were actually allowable because the data that we were using and we processed through the analytic was lacking information uh, for the analytic to correctly identify the transaction as being safe. Examples of this include city addresses that were not included in our city address list and vendor addresses that we didn't include in the analytic because they didn't, we didn't have a list for video, uh, vendor addresses. The risk um, was anything going outside of an established city facility location um, or establishment. So in doing this sample and discovering that we had some false positives and seeing that our analytic lacked in a couple areas um, is a good explanation and kind of speaks to the conversation we had earlier with MCC codes um, as to why we feel it's necessary to take on the new approach that we've mentioned and sample the risk population before making a final determination and potentially providing data to, um, to audit teams. Further, it allows us to enhance the efficiency and accuracy of each of our analytics, kind of improving the health of our analytics in a way. Anything going out of state? I recall at this time, so we specifically, the way that the analytics designed is we separate it from inside Denver and outside Denver. And so most things are inside Denver, but as you know, I mean, there's a lot of logical reasons to um, send something outside of Denver as we own many things that are outside city limits. Um, but that comes to mind immediately. I don't, I can't think of anything out of state. Yeah, that would definitely be a risk. <laughs> Um, so this, it probably looks very familiar to you all. This, we've presented this in our last update um, and the one previously as well, I believe. Um, but when we presented this information in the past, the blue and red dots represented risky and safe locations, respectively. Uh, however, now that we know that analytic returns false positives, our results are less definitive, uh, which is why we use verified and non-verified labels. The blue dots represent, represent 
verified city locations and the red dots represent non-verified locations. It's also important to keep in mind that each dot represents only one location, but it can also represent many transactions. Like I mentioned earlier, the red dots you see make up only 1% of all transactions over the last five years. Our work moving forward will now focus on testing the non-verified locations to create a more comprehensive list of city addresses and potentially create a list of verified vendor addresses, now that we know that most of the sample was being sent directly to vendors. So I know you were here for the security and safety of facilities. I mean, there's a population of addresses that they have. Is, is that what we used? actually piqued my interest. I'm not sure if it's the same list. I don't think it is. The city, the list that we are using, um, and as far as we know, is was the best resource we had available to us, was from real estate. But we are finding that it's actually not very comprehensive, which we did an audit of real estate a couple of years ago, and that was a finding there as well. So that was no surprise. We're just, as we continue to do our work and improve our analytics, we're continuing to improve the source data that we're using as well. I'm confused about the vendor address comment you just made. Sure. Do you do you mean <clears throat> you said ship to vendor addresses? Do you mean that people were picking up the merchandise from vendor it may locations? Not, in the sample that we looked at, it didn't appear to be an actual um, like material that they were picking up. It was like a check that was sent to them. Like maybe they put on a training at a city facility, and we were paying them for their services. So they were being paid, and so it was just a check that was being sent directly to their home address. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, okay, does anybody have any questions about our analytics before we move on to project updates? No? Okay. So our current projects include a risk assessment of the Denver Employees Retirement Plan and a risk assessment of citywide technology purchases, which is now a full audit. Our objective for the Denver Employees Retirement Plan Risk Assessment is to assess the accuracy of employee and employer contributions and benefit payouts and whether procedures are compliant with applicable policies. Earlier this week, we completed our planning phase, which consisted of conducting research, interviews, and walkthroughs to inform our scope and analytics. We are now in what we refer to as the fieldwork phase. The executive team requested we conduct this risk assessment and provided us with ideas of where to focus our attention. We presented our proposed scope, analytics, and timeframe earlier this week, and now look ahead to receiving the data. That was requested by their executive team or you all? Ours. I'm assuming that uh, audit of the, okay. And then retirement plan audits test, um, I think their sample includes distributions and testing the accuracy. I'm not suggesting this isn't great, but I'm hoping that they're doing one annually themselves. I have a better answer to that, but we're looking at the whole population of data where they might be looking at a statistical sample. Sure, absolutely, yeah, okay. But we are aware But they that do do an audit, right? Yes, they yeah. do every year. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they have an actuary and they do, a, yeah, they perform and publish a report each year, which is public facing. Yep. Thank you, Heather. <clears throat> 
Another project of ours is looking for technology purchases that don't align with Executive Order 18. In January 2021, Executive Order 18 was updated to outline the procurement process for technology resources. The order specifies that all technology purchases, including both software and hardware, must go through the city's technology services agency. This process allows technology services to make sure all the devices on the city's network are compatible and that they have the right software to keep the city's network protected. The project started with an internal assessment to determine how widespread the issue might be. The memo for that analysis was provided to our executive team in September of last year. The results of our initial analysis warranted a full audit, and we provided our preliminary results to the audit team to assist with their planning phase. We took what we learned from the preliminary analysis and applied it to the full audit to provide the best results possible for the team. For example, we refined our risk indicators to improve their accuracy and developed a risk score so that the team could get a sense of the level of risk for each individual transaction. In addition to identifying the team's population of risky transactions, we also had the opportunity to work with the team throughout the audit, including by helping the team develop their sampling methodology and evaluating their results. The full audit is scheduled for release in May. After the audit is released, we'll incorporate these analytics into our continuous suite so we can monitor the impact the recommendations have on mitigating this risk moving forward. Any questions before I continue? The last six months have been quite productive for the audit analytics team, and we've had the chance to work on seven different full audits that look at a wide range of topics. Most often, we help teams with data analysis. For example, an audit team outlines the testing steps and criteria in their audit program. They request the data needed for testing. Then we use that data to complete the steps in their program and answer the objective. We also help teams with sampling, which is basically helping teams pick out a portion of records from a larger population. This is useful if you want to evaluate a risk, but you don't have enough time to test all the records. We also help teams with technical support, which in this case was providing a technical review to ensure the soundness of the team's methodology. For the audit looking at encampments of people experiencing homelessness, we helped in a few different areas. We helped the team develop a methodology to sample contracts for in-depth testing based on the area of risk. Once they completed their attribute testing, we helped the audit team evaluate the testing results of their sample so they could describe the overall impact. We also helped, the data we also helped with data collection and cleaning. We retrieved a data set of records from the city's 311 service and helped them prepare several additional data sets for their analyses. For example, they had several data sets that had encampment information, including addresses. We helped them develop a method to standardize the address format and retrieve a corresponding latitude and longitude. Once the team gathered the latitude and longitudes of the encampment addresses, we created several maps that help highlight significant areas in their audit objectives. This full audit is scheduled for release in April. We also worked on the forthcoming Denver Police Department operations audit. Our work on this project focused on analyzing data related to four areas of risk that the audit team identified. We looked at officer response times, or how long it takes an officer to arrive on scene, and looked at the distribution of call times across the city to identify any trends. 
We also looked at recruitment information and officer retention to describe the department's current process and identify potential opportunities for improvement. Lastly, we evaluated the department's compliance with overtime policies to identify instances where officers may have worked more hours than allowed. This audit is scheduled for release <laughs> in May. Any questions before we move on? All right, I'll now pass it back to Heather to talk about another project we've worked on. To highlight some of our work in a slightly different way, we wanted to share with you an example of what our audit support can look like in a published report. <coughs> You might remember hearing from the Residential Trash, Recycling, and Compost Services audit team in November of last year. In terms of our support for them, we merged, cleaned, prepped, and visualized data sets that the team themselves obtained from 311 platforms. Our results were used to help support the team's first finding, which was the Solid Waste Management Division lacks strategic direction and quality data to inform how it provides services to residents. You likely remember this figure as well from the last, uh, from last November, um, from the November committee. But as a reminder, it displays resident call volumes for those who reported missed pickups. Once we organized the data visually, it was clear to see a spike in missed pickups in January 2022, which coincides with the implementation of a new policy that changed pickup schedules and routes for the first time in 15 years. This supported the audit team's finding by suggesting the new policy was not adequately communicated to residents. There were 5,693 reports of missed pickups after controlling for duplicate calls from the same person, which is over 2,000 more reports when compared to the next highest spike. And in addition to updating our continuous audit analytics and providing audit support, we also offered internal training and presented at several conferences. We offered <coughs> attribute development, statistical sampling, and Arbutus software trainings internally to our office's staff, totaling nearly 10 continuing professional education credits, which we are required to earn each year to remain compliant with auditing standards. In terms of conferences, we presented at the Institute of Internal Auditors Conference on the topic of using traditional auditing techniques to improve analytics. And we presented at the Rocky Mountain Area Conference on the topic of how regression analysis can be used to support audit findings. Our recent submission to the 2023 Association of Local Government Auditors Conference was approved and we'll be presenting information on how logistical regression can be used to reduce false positives in analytics. After presenting at a conference, we will also occasionally meet with other audit shops who reach out with questions or request guidance after attending one of our sessions. To wrap up the discussion of our recent activity. I have a question. I've oh, got I'm one sorry. Question. Yeah. Rudy. The question goes to the fact that, uh, uh, <laughs> it just escaped me, it'll come back to me. I was just disrupted. But it has to do with, um, just give me a second, sure. it'll come back. Of course. Um, we only have a couple more slides anyway and then we'll open it back up to questions. Um, so just to wrap up the discussion of our recent activity, here on slide 35 is a visual overview. We provided support on seven audits, analyzed over a million records using 26 different analytics, offered three internal training sessions to office staff, and presented at two conferences. 
Now as we look ahead to what's next, we anticipate presenting our Denver Employee Retirement Plan results and any potential recommendations internally to management, beginning to plan our next project, continuing to cross-train audit staff to expand analytic skill sets in the office, and preparing for our upcoming conference we just mentioned in May. We also plan to improve our analytics suite by adding a new area of assessment to strengthen our understanding of purchase order shipping location risks. We are currently in the development stage of creating an analytic that will compare shipping addresses to employee addresses. We hope to share results of that analytic with you during our next update. If you remember, that was a discussion in our last committee too. So we took that forward and we've already started designing it. You have Come back to you. Do you also provide support in terms of like sampling questionnaires, things of that nature, in order to get more precise data when you're data collecting? We do. It sounds like you do. We do. Just in the last six months, we haven't worked on any surveys or questionnaires. Okay. What about analytical uh, 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 platforms that advising someone how to analyze the information that you just lay out the information in terms of like an, ex an Excel spreadsheet or something like that, just to make it so simple? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We do internal trainings. Um, we do an Excel training twice a year. Um, and Arbutus is a software. It doesn't. It's not necessarily a questionnaire platform, but it's it's a software that's used for auditing and can be used in visualizations. And what triggered is when you said you gave them you gave an, uh, a conference on regression analysis, and that's what figured that triggered the whole thing in terms of your involvement. Just wanted to make sure that was much more clear. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Any other thoughts before we conclude? All right. Well, I'd just like to say that, uh, like Leslie, I find this um, the information fascinating, and um, and appreciate how you all support and also bring up um, areas that might need, you know, further investigation. So thank you for your uh, a lot of data out there <laughs> whirling around the city. How big is the analytics team? That's it. It's the four of you. Yeah, so it's oh, changed geez. a bit since you've seen us last. Wow. And, and do you have openings? Or is, this is it. You're fully staffed. Are you looking for a new job? <laughs> oh, my gosh. No. We're looking for an intern, Leslie. Yeah, we, yeah, we just posted an intern analysis. The hair on the back of my neck was like, oh, my gosh, I remember statistics. No, thanks. I guess what I was just kind of getting at, is this a difficult position to fill? Because it just seems like you're your experience in education is fairly specific, right? So I was just curious. Hiring, maybe I should be asking Valerie that question. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, also I, I think what's really impressive about this team is how much they have picked up on um, supporting individual audits exactly. because that's extremely useful to, you know, inform that audit work um, and be able to present some other results that may not otherwise have surfaced. My take on it, my very uh, ignorant take on this is that what the analytics team does is really leverage and enhances the audit team to be able to do bigger, better, more, more accurate. So it, it's really impressive. I mean, the knowledge and the technology is really impressive. And we are currently recruiting for an intern. You are. Okay. I'll see if I can go back to school. Yesterday, <laughs> we made a presentation at the University of Colorado to a class that invites us back every year, but we did talk a little bit about the data analytics team that we had, and the professor, you know, emphasized to the students that how important data analytics are, and I think he also made a comment that many of the students didn't like data analytics, 
but I think it's terribly important, uh, and it's a, uh, a part of auditing that we will see more of in the future. Uh, and, uh, <coughs> There's only so much, you know, an auditor can do cracking open the books. You need to right. be able to really dig into the data. And the data analytics also really lends a lot of support in terms of your objective scope and methodology when you're presenting to, <coughs> it makes you more real, makes you more, you know, uh, I mean, you're right on, you know, in terms of that. All right, thank you very much. Um, our next item is general business. Our next meeting will be Thursday, March 16th, here in the Par Widener Room at 9 o'clock. Uh, <coughs> with that, I'd like to adjourn into executive session uh, to talk about our external audit. block and a half would be the Melba Theater. All of these theaters were white theaters with the exception of the Lyric. The Lyric was, I guess we could say, pseudo-integrated because whites sat on the first floor. Blacks were allowed to sit on the second floor in the balcony. I'm entering the lobby of the Lyric Theater for the very first time. Uh, it's when I was here growing up in Birmingham, we would purchase our tickets outside and then walk around to the entrance on the side. I've never been in, this is the very first time that I've ever seen this particular area of the Lyric Theater. Uh, What's it like? It's, well, it's amazing because this is not what I remember as the Lyric. The lyric for me was outside and up these stairs, and usually these stairs were rather dark. And we would come in this door and go up these stairs to the balcony. And in many cases, as we would go up the balcony, we, we really never decided to come to the lyric. I remember our coming to the lyric but not just to see a movie. We would come here, and as we sat here in the balcony, we would actually throw water and popcorn down on the white kids that sat on the main floor. And then we would run out of here over to the Carver Theater, to the black theaters. So we always suggested that the segregations made a mistake when they put us up top rather than at the bottom. Segregation and race relations at the time was at its height because everything under the sun was segregated. Downtown, all of the department stores, we could go in, black people could actually purchase, but they could not try items on before they made the purchase. 
They could purchase items, but they could not sit at a counter. If you bought a hot dog, you would buy it at the end of the counter, and you'd walk outside to eat the hot dog. Yeah. Um, I tell my kids that, and they did not believe that that, in fact, was the case. But it really was. And that really set the tone for what race relations were like during that time. We were totally serious. That is to suggest that everything from churches, schools, uh, recreational activities, you name it, it was segregated. And that was, in fact, the law. It was basically both law and custom, because even after the law was changed, custom, it took quite a while for custom to really change. And um, today, I tell children about having to get on the back of the bus, having to sit behind the sign that designated colored in back and white in front. Uh, they simply cannot imagine that. Having to talk about coming here to the Lyric or any of the other businesses downtown and having to drink colored water versus white water. There's a white water fountain and a, in quote, colored water fountain. So you had to determine which one of those you were gonna drink from. We didn't have to determine, it was already determined for us. Uh, we wondered what white water tastes like, so there were times when we would obviously, as children and mischief, uh, mischievous, we would taste the white water and basically not taste any different, other than many times white water was cold water, colored water was not cold. White water was from uh, a fountain that was uh, probably cooled by electricity, whereas the black fountain was not. Uh, so everything here was segregated. Now right across the street from the Lyric Theater, across 18th Street, is the Pythian Temple, where there were many black businesses. And then from the Pythian Temple on down 18th Street, over to 4th Avenue, 5th Avenue, was the black business district. So we would leave the Lyric Theater many times running because we had thrown water down on the white kids and we would run to 4th Avenue. And 4th Avenue was a bustling uh, place at the time. Uh, so, you know, we were having fun, we thought. Uh, but now that I'm here and I can actually see this place, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a different place. Why? Well, because I've never seen it from the vantage points that I've seen it today. And that is, I've never been in the lobby of the Lyric Theater. Our lobby was actually the sidewalk. And then you come up the backside of, of, the, um, of the theater. So we never saw the, the glamorous part. And how long would you stay in this theater? Well, you, you know, leave to come, you just came well, to yeah, I, I, you know, again, it's been more than 50 years, uh, and I can't remember totally, but I know that there were times when we would simply come here, come upstairs, do our devilment, and then we'd run out. And I'm trying to think if, if there were times. No, we never got caught. Never got caught. Do you know of anybody that did and what happened to them? No, I don't know anybody that did. Uh, but if they did, I'm sure it wasn't nice. 
whatever happened. Because I can tell you some stories about uh, the Birmingham police. The Birmingham police, when I went to Minneapolis on the cars, it would always say, uh, to protect and serve. Birmingham police, as far as blacks were concerned, were not here to protect and serve us. Yeah. Uh, I remember out in the southwestern section of town, there's a car number 51. And if you saw car number 51 coming and you were black, you would not remain on that corner. Black and young, yeah, you would not remain on that corner. Um, there have been some horrific episodes uh, out there. In 1957, for instance, when um, Judge Aaron, a young black man, was actually accosted um, one night by Klansmen, as I stated, uh, and he was actually beaten and he was castrated. And they were saying that it was because Reverend Shuttlesworth was attempting to desegregate the school system. He said that they, the, the word was that any black person, if Shuttlesworth didn't stop what he was doing, this is what would happen to young black men if they are caught out. And the police department and the Klan, from our perspective, were synonymous. There was really no different. And it was, it was terror at its worst uh, where we were concerned. Yeah. What was the significance of police car number 51? Police car number 51, it was just a Birmingham police car. And it had, on the tags, of course, it had MUN, which meant a municipal car. But we always stated that that MUN meant murder you niggers. That's the way that we viewed, from the black perspective, that's the way we viewed the, the police department because they were not our friends. What's segregation like today in Birmingham? Do you see it? Well, segregation in the classic sense doesn't exist in Birmingham any longer. Just as segregation in Birmingham now is like segregation would have been in, in Chicago or Minneapolis. Uh, it is not, it's, it's de facto not de jure. You know, in, in, when I went to Minneapolis, for instance, I went to Chicago, I found as much or more segregation there than I did in Birmingham, but it was not de jure, it was not by law, it was simply by custom. Today, segregation here is by custom rather than by law. You know, if you go to my church on Sunday, you may find uh, a few white people, not very many at all, uh, probably count them on one hand. If you go to other churches that are white, you probably won't find anybody, uh, maybe just a few black people. So, and if you go to certain neighborhoods, Birmingham now is about 75% African-American. But if you go out- Welcome to The Gavel, your weekly Denver City Council wrap-up. Here's what happened this week. On Monday, February 6th, during the Budget and Policy Committee, Community Planning and Development presented the 2023 work program on behalf of the administration. Later that day, the City Council passed a resolution approving a continuing agreement between the City and County of Denver and the community firm to continue administering the Emergency Rental Assistance Program to eligible households earning up to 80% of the area median income that were unable to pay rent during or due to the COVID-19 pandemic citywide. Community Planning and Development presented City Council three separate bills for consideration. 
Up first, an ordinance changing the zoning classification for 4350 Shoshone Street in Sunnyside. Secondly, for an ordinance changing the zoning classification for 1901 North Eudora Street in South Park Hill. Lastly, an ordinance amending the Denver Zoning Code, establishing the Cherry Creek East Mixed Use Design Overlay Zone District and the Cherry Creek East Residential Design Overlay Zone District, and clarifying certain rules of measurement and a bill for an ordinance changing the zoning classification for multiple properties to apply the Cherry Creek East Mixed Use and Cherry Creek East Residential Design Overlays. All three bills pass unanimously. On Tuesday, February 7th, the Finance and Governance Committee were presented a lease agreement with Quebec Hospitality LLC doing business as Comfort Inn to provide 138 rooms as a non-congregate shelter for families experiencing homelessness during the COVID-19 pandemic, located at 4685 Quebec Street in Council District 8. The Department of Finance also presented a purchase and sale agreement with Lifespan Local LLC as part of the Rise Denver Bond Program for the city to purchase a 6,000 square foot condo unit to support a new Denver Public Library branch in the Westwood neighborhood located at 3300 Nevada Place in Council District 3. Both measures were passed on to the full council. On Wednesday, February 8th, the Safety, Housing, Education and Homelessness Committee were presented with a council member-sponsored ordinance amending certain provisions of Chapter 2 concerning the Citizen Oversight Board. The Citizen Oversight Board consists of nine community members who are broadly tasked with assessing the effectiveness of the Denver Department of Public Safety's hiring, training, and disciplinary processes and making recommendations as appropriate. The board is also responsible for appointing, by and with the consent of the City Council, the independent monitor who shall serve at the pleasure of the board. Thank you. Good morning, all. My name is Elizabeth Bedez-Castle, and I am your new Denver Independent Monitor. My goal is to continue the great work that has been done so far by the Office of the Independent Monitor. This agency has done tremendous work uh, for the city of Denver, for the community of Denver. My mission is to bridge the gap between law enforcement and the community through transparency and a continued accountability. To increase the trust that needs to happen between our community and that of law enforcement. The ordinance amendment will move on to City Council. Denver City Council meets every Monday at 3.30 at the City and County Building Council Chambers or tune in live on Denver 8 or Zoom. Want more info on City Council, including weekly schedules, agendas, and archived recordings? Join this Denver City Council mailing list by texting CC Schedule to 22828 or visit denvergov.org backslash city council. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for Denver news, events, and information. I'm honored to be here as mayor and congratulate you, Ray, and welcome you to Denver, Colorado. Thank you for choosing our city. The system will automatically track the tumor. This is a very important moment uh, in our city. Whenever we're able to pull um, companies like you, Ray, uh, to Denver, to Colorado, 
which join the pool of med tech companies along the front range. And the MRI controls the beam on and off to account for any motion or body changes in the patient. More personalized medicine, fewer negative side effects. That is exactly what we're driving at ViewRay in the radiation oncology, radiation therapy space. If the tumor is outside of the ideal position, the beam will turn off. The MRI controls the radiation beam. So whether you're talking about the hardest to treat cancers and keeping patients alive or dramatically impacting the life of somebody with breast or prostate cancer, this system that Dr. Dempsey invented is just miraculous. It is Star Trek kind of therapy. It makes it virtually impossible for the radiation beam to miss. You've grown over 50 employees now, um, but you share our values. And what those values are that we saw in, in Vuray are the values of diversity and inclusion, a uh, very diverse workforce. But I was also extremely impressed to read about the fact that half of your board of directors are women. And that says an awful lot to me. We looked at great places to live, work, educate families, kids. Um, where can we hire all of these software engineers and quality engineers? And where can we put a manufacturing location? And all of those analytics, no surprise to you guys, uh, Colorado pops out uh, on the map. That companies aren't made of brick and mortar. They're made of people and ideas. Crazy ideas like curing cancer. Is companies like ViewRay are not just Colorado or national companies. We know that you're going to play globally. And my job as mayor and the next mayor and the governor and the next governor is to make sure that you're able to transact that business very conveniently, affordably, and feasibly across the waters. And so we'll continue to focus on making Denver that destination, that global destination to do business, as well as to be able to move your products and your people around the world. And so we're proud to have the third busiest airport in the world to help you do that. Three, two, one. So there we go. So congratulations, Alex Adele you and your partners for coming in to the airport. Several years ago, Dan completed a strategic plan and the objective was to bring more of our local brands into the airport to become kind of global brands. As you walk through the airport, you get a chance to see what we as Denverites get to celebrate every day. And today, we celebrate a local brand that we all enjoy in downtown Denver and around uh, our great city in Mercantile, the Mercantile is a place that I enjoy dining at, at Union Station, and now I can come and dine here at Denver National Airport. To get to this point and be able to represent Denver, not only in Denver International Airport, but also down at Union Station, what I would consider the two best places to be to represent Denver. I am uh, thoroughly, thoroughly excited about the opportunity and so gracious. This is an active site right here. The line, people getting food, and so as we continue to welcome more and more passengers here uh, at Denver International Airport and prepare for 100 million passengers, we want to make sure they have a positive experience. This is exactly what we want to do. Not only bring in local brands, but to lift up our local minority disadvantaged businesses and their opportunities uh, here at DEN. These efforts create jobs. These efforts give us a chance to give our passengers an experience that we're proud to showcase uh, no matter where they come from around the world.
This agreement, I believe, is a good deal for our residents. It continues the long-standing commitment of accountability, transparency, and partnership between the city and Denver Health to benefit uh, all of our residents. And it takes new steps to ensure that anyone in need of these services, no matter where they are, when they call for help, uh, they will continue to receive the best possible medical care that uh, we can provide them and save lives. Because that's the most important thing. I like to emphasize the fact that Denver Health is accountable to the city. It's also accountable to our citizens. And that we believe that as we move forward, um, enhance transparency around what we do and how we collectively respond to emergencies in particular is going to be important. We have a goal to continue to improve response times, no matter who is responding, and to make sure that the distribution of this response team uh, meets the needs of our citizens. So under this new agreement, there will be a second medical director added to the emergency medical response system. So two medical directors, one at Denver Health and one at the fire department. And in the spirit of collaboration, we will jointly select those medical directors. Our fire department personnel who now get trained in BLS and ALS will see enhanced training to support that. However, our Denver Health paramedics will continue to be the lead paramedics at the scene. And in addition, we made clear that the transport of patients is a responsibility, the sole responsibility of Denver Health. Denver Health and the paramedics may be, like a lot of other agencies and services, stretched with staff and resources covering a growing city. We're growing massively out there, but they are very committed. What our fire department and what I want the people to know is the fire department of the city and county of Denver said we are partners with the paramedics. We want to help as best we can while we're on the scene. Oftentimes we're first to arrive. Give us the ability to help people instead of standing around waiting. And I think this new agreement that we have where there are two medical directors, where our fire uh, department uh, members are trained to provide not only basic but advanced life support uh, while on the scene uh, under the direction of a medical director uh, will make a difference. And then when the paramedics arrive, they become the lead on the ground. One of the things that we're observing is that we often have to hire people into jobs had actually a higher salary than somebody that's got experience. And that's not right. So our desire is to keep people, continue to see them be paid a living wage, and to be able to also train them and get them to move up the ladder. I, any, any employee who leaves makes sort of breaks my heart because we've, we've invested time training them and getting them part of the team. And we don't have as much of an issue attracting people, um, but I need to do, we need to do a better job of making sure that we keep the people that we have. That is our most valuable resource and making sure that they feel valued and appreciated. Obviously, as we continue to grow and approach things differently, we will have to take a step back to look at the parameters of the types of people that we're hiring and what certifications they have currently in place. As we summarize this, this is a, let's say a $70 million agreement between Denver Health and, and the city of Denver. Um, there are, as Donna pointed out, 35 different sections in this agreement that you should look at because this is just one of the areas that we work to make an improvement. There are greater delineations in terms of roles and responsibilities under public health as well as uh, more uh, coordination, stricter coordination uh, with services in our jails with the Sheriff's Department and, and Denver Health. And again, trying to tighten up and to improve those, oper those operations. We went into this 
wanting to improve services to the people of Denver, uh, whether they are being met on the street or we're dealing with them in detention facilities or how we coordinate, further coordinate around public health. I'm excited for what we're going to be doing for our city going forward. I'm excited for the partnerships. I'm excited for how our citizens will be identified in a different way. The people of Denver will be identified um, so that we can I isolate those areas um, and make sure that everybody is getting equal uh, response coverage. This is important. It's important. It's something I've worked on since I was a city council member. You acknowledge that. And I'm glad we've arrived at this moment because I think it's a partnership that ultimately will benefit the people of Denver. The arts are one of the hallmarks of our great city and their benefits, while often intangible, are intrinsic. And I can tell you as someone who's had to market and sell the city all over the world, there is not a sale package that goes forward without talking about our commitment to the arts and culture. Because we recognize that they remind us of our shared humanity, they connect us, they inspire us, they build us up, they keep us hopeful in very difficult times. They drive us to make this world better. Arts and culture and creativity help us to process and heal in challenging times. I will never forget that the true champion of, of the COVID experience for all of us over the last three years really are the arts and culture. I want you to reflect back on how you survived it. And I promise you, somewhere along that journey, Arts and culture played a role. Whether you turned on a play that you didn't get, you hadn't had a chance to see. Uh, some of us caught Hamilton for the first time on television. So through art and culture, the creativity, the imaginations that we have, give us hope for the future. Art and culture help us to celebrate successes and express joy in communities. Today's honorees, we get to celebrate this moment and thank them for their contribution to our culture and our heart, being the heart of our city. We've got some exciting news regarding our Center of Equity and Excellence in Aviation, also known as SIA. The space is literally right above us. The first of its kind uh, in this country to create a pipeline of aviation talent here in Denver and the Rocky Mountain region. It's going to provide underrepresented young people an opportunity to start a career in aviation. This first is the Hall of Equity. This will be the focal point of SIA. I remember the conversations where I talked about training the next generation of aviation workers. How do we prepare people who've never been concessionaires? 
to be concessionaires. Uh, it's one thing to say we want to draw on our local talent and local business people and entrepreneurs. It's another thing to prepare them for the dynamics and really the burdens and opportunities that come into this airport and be competitive. It's one thing to say we want young people, particularly in this era where we are as a nation in a lot of trouble in terms of the talent pool for pilots to get ready to come and compete to be pilots. And yet another thing to say we're going to begin to create the opportunity for them to train to be in the aviation industry and hopefully to be pilots to pursue that dream. And to also reach into communities that never imagined that they could be pilots or mechanical engineers or civil engineers or construction engineers right here in Denver International Airport. This level will focus on exposing high school kids and younger kids and college age kids to careers in aviation through hands-on practical experiences. And so when Phil says we want to be the Silicon Valley of training the next professionals of aviation here at the Center of Equity and Excellence, some of us might chuckle. But this could become the center where the pitter-patter of opportunities become the strides of excellence and the strides of dreams right here in this building. This pre-function space will provide space for CIA students and guests to network, make business connections. We get to see from the construction what it means for underrepresented, underutilized institutions and individuals rise up and say, I can do this. We're seeing it from the beginning. This last rendering shows the lobby area that will have a cafe. The mayor said, you know, we should have a concession training area where upstart or new concession businesses can be in that space learning how to be a concession and actually make money in that space as they're learning. There's no need to wait for getting involved and engaging with SIA. These programs have been happening and are already happening now, right? So we want to continue to grow that. We have a Business Development Training Academy, or BDTA. We have Career Pathways, a five-tier program that matriculates all the way up to executive level leadership. And we have a Research and Innovation Lab that we're implementing program on. This center is a groundbreaking concept that will change the way Denver National Airport does business. It will create economic development opportunities, fuel jobs, and provide benefits to our entire community. For example, those in underserved communities will have a chance to start a career in aviation. And one reason why I'm so passionate about this, this is a rich industry with a lot of opportunities. And a lot of firms, including our small and minority firms, will have a chance to develop and grow into large companies. The opportunities are endless, and I can't wait to see what the vision of this building looks like, but it will ultimately be about the people that go into this building to learn and prepare to thrive. that so many people who are here today are probably here for the first time. Many of us have shown up. I've thought about it for about 30 years. I know it's 38, but 30 years. 
have been coming. Every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Before I was a gleam in a voter's eye to be a councilman, before I decided to run for mayor, I was with my brothers and sisters spending the night at the permit center. Because when Dr. King's birthday would roll around at the strike of midnight, we had to make sure that we were ahead of the Klan to get the permit so that we could march, so that we could be at the Civic Center in the state capitol without counter-protest. As we remember the life of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., we thank you that we are here not just to celebrate a perfect human being, he was not that, but one who was courageous enough to try to do what was right, even when the path forward was unclear. That as we show up here today, we are a reflection of Dr. King's dream. We need you to grant us the strength that extends far beyond natural human ability. We need you to help us to forgive, to choose love over hate. Since December 1, by the values of Dr. King, in 30 days, 4,282 people came to this city from Venezuela. They needed love. This city, many of you, showed up out of the reflection of Dr. King and simply said, we got you. Thank you, Denver, for standing up, for making a difference. All right, let's march on. The true calling for all of us today is to show up and be a reflection of Dr. King's dream. We don't come here just to celebrate King. We come here to act like King. We come here to be on the forefront of action like King. This is hypocritical if you just come out here, sing happy birthday and leave. You could do that at home. As Wellington Webb said so beautifully, it's not enough just to show up here with a sign. It's not enough to show up here and sing a few songs. We've got to work every day. Because see, there's still attacks on the LGBTQ community. There's still attacks on the Jewish community. We've got Asian neighbors who don't want to come outside for fear of being targeted. Black men are still over-incarcerated. Black men and women are still underpaid. And the home of the brave. We've got work to do. And ultimately, God had to remove Dr. King so that each of us could understand that we have a responsibility now to pick up the baton, to carry on the dream, and that it takes each and every one of us as a village to spend the night at the permit center to make sure that we're a reflection of his dream. God bless you all. Let us march on till victory is won. Let's walk for love that feels good. Y'all ready? That's right. Let's go. We started this entire process together. Yes, right. Years ago.
about 15 years ago. It just yeah. feels like the you know that day 15 years ago where we decided we would collaborate on this very important objective. And I'm so glad that I got my dear friend here to continue the journey. When the center opened, it was just a dream come true. I, I think the power of this is that the tragedies that occur as a result of domestic violence are preventable. And what we're here to do today is to raise the flag and hopefully increase awareness that there are services for people who are being victimized today. This is important for all of us. It's going to take the entire community. October 22nd will be my 14-year escape anniversary. If you had to tell me 14 years ago that I would be standing here today with support from the city and county of Denver officials, I would tell you you're darn right because I'm just that strong. I survived. I left with probably $20 in my pocket, slept on a cousin's couch. So I know what hard times are. And I know what it feels like not to know what to do, not to have hope. So this is why we have the center. The center, it carries my name, but many of you have heard me say it's not about me. It's about all of you. It's about all of those individuals who are suffering today. I noticed as we walked, it was quite, kind of quiet and solemn. We only do that when someone else has the power. The abuser doesn't have the power. We're the survivors, so we can make some noise today. We can celebrate on behalf of those who are not here. My beloved sister, Karen, in 2002, unfortunately, I was there with my hand on her shoulder when she took her last breath after my twin sister discovered her uh, having been victim of a gunshot to the head. This is a personal issue for me because the person who shot and murdered my sister and brought unspeakable pain to her children and to the rest of the family was someone who was supposed to love her. I promised her that day that I would never stop fighting for victims and doing everything we could to remind victims to don't wait, to say something. I forgot the six pack, I'll be right back. It's not like it's a crime, right? Your excuses will never be as good as their reasons. No plates, no placard, no parking. Observe a domesticated human family in their natural habitat, known to their species as the backyard. Hey, you think I should light it now? Yeah. Oh dear, someone is about to burn a pile of debris that's too tall, which can start a wildfire. Wait, could it be? Blimey, oh, it is. It's Smokey. It's Smokey Bear. What a legend. Hey, it's Smokey. Sorry, it was too high. Right. Watch as he astutely ensures that there's no wind and how he removes some of the debris to create a smaller, safer burning pile. No, you, you, can't make it no, you can't make it bigger, baby. The bigger, the better. Take note right. of our fearless furry friend here, yeah. humans. I appreciate it. Fist bump. 
<laughs> Smokey's done it again. Hi, Smokey. Only you can prevent wildfires. President, as one who has taken some interest in the election of presidents, I want to congratulate you on your election to this high office, Mr. Secretary General, delegates to the United Nations, ladies and gentlemen, we meet again in the quest for peace. Twenty-four months ago, when I last had the honor of addressing this body, the shadow of fear, lay darkly across the world. The freedom of West Berlin, wars in immediate peril, agreement on a neutral Laos seemed remote. The mandate of the United Nations in the Congo was under fire, pulled back the darkness. Today the clouds have lifted a little so that new rays of hope can break through. The pressures on West Berlin appear to be temporarily eased. Political unity in the Congo has been largely restored. A neutral coalition in Laos, while still in difficulty, is at least in being. The integrity of the United Nations Secretariat has been reaffirmed. A United Nations decade of development is underway. And for the first time in 17 years of effort, a specific step has been taken to limit the nuclear arms race. I refer, of course, to the treaty to ban nuclear tests in the atmosphere, outer space, and underwater, concluded by the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and already signed by nearly 100 countries. It has been hailed by people the world over who are thankful to be free from the fears of nuclear fallout. And I am confident that on next Tuesday at 10.30 o'clock in the morning, it will receive the overwhelming endorsement of the Senate of the United States. The world has not escaped from the darkness. The long shadows of conflict and crisis envelop us still. But we meet today in an atmosphere of rising hope and at a moment of comparative calm. My presence here today is not a sign of crisis, but of confidence. I am not here to report on a new threat to the peace or new signs of war. I have come to salute the United Nations 
and to show the support of the American people for your daily deliberations, for the value of this body's wedding, the reduction of global tension must not be an excuse for the narrow pursuit of self-interest. If the Soviet Union and the United States, with all of their global interests and clashing commitments of ideology, and with nuclear weapons still aimed at each other today, can find areas of common interest and agreement, then surely other nations can do the same. Nations caught in regional conflicts, in racial issues, or in the death throes of old colonialism. Chronic disputes which divert precious resources from the needs of the people, or drain the energies of both sides, serve the interests of no one. And the badge of responsibility in the modern world is a willingness to seek peaceful solutions. It is never too early to try, and it's never too late to talk. And it's the United States, as a major nuclear power, does have a special responsibility to the world. It is, in fact, a threefold responsibility. A responsibility to our own citizens. A responsibility to the people of the whole world who are affected by our decisions and to the next generation of humanity. We believe the Soviet Union also has these special responsibilities and that those responsibilities require our two nations to concentrate less on our differences and more on the means of resolving them peacefully. For too long, both of us have increased our military budgets, our nuclear stockpiles, and our capacity to destroy all life on this hemisphere, human, animal, vegetable, without any corresponding increase in our security. Our conflicts, to be sure, are real. Our concepts of the world are different. No service is performed by failing to make clear our disagreements. A central difference is the belief of the American people in self-determination for all people. We believe that the people of Germany and Berlin must be free to reunite their capital and their country. We believe that the people of Cuba must be free to secure the fruits of the revolution that have been betrayed from within and exploited from without protection of freedom. And our determination to safeguard that freedom will measure up to any threat or challenge. But I would say to the leaders of the Soviet Union and to their people, that if either of our countries is to be fully secure, we need a much better weapon than the H-bomb, a weapon better than ballistic missiles or nuclear submarines, and that better weapon is peaceful cooperation. We have in recent years agreed on a limited test ban treaty on an emergency communications link between our capitals, on a statement of principles for disarmament, on an increase in cultural exchange, on cooperation in outer space, on the peaceful exploration of the Antarctics, and on tempering last year's crisis over Cuba. I believe, therefore, that the Soviet Union 
and the United States, together with their allies, can achieve further agreements. Agreements which spring from our mutual interest in avoiding mutual destruction. There can be no doubt about the agenda of further steps. We must continue to seek agreements on measures which prevent war by accident or miscalculation. We must continue to seek agreement on safeguards against surprise attack, including observation posts at key points. We must continue to seek agreement on further measures to curb the nuclear arms race by controlling the transfer of nuclear weapons, converting fissionable materials to peaceful purposes, and banning underground testing with adequate inspection and enforcement. We must continue to seek agreement on a freer flow of information and people from east to west and west to east. We must continue to seek agreement. Encouraged by yesterday's affirmative response to this proposal by the Soviet foreign minister on an arrangement to keep weapons of mass destruction out of outer space. Let us get our negotiators back to the negotiating table to work out a practicable arrangement to this end purposes. Finally, in a field where the United States and the Soviet Union have a special capacity in the field of space, there is room for new cooperation, for further joint efforts in the regulation and exploration of space. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. Space offers no problems of sovereignty. By resolution of this assembly, the members of the United Nations have forsworn any claim that territorial rights in outer space or on celestial bodies and declared that international law and the United Nations Charter will apply why, therefore, should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? Why should the United States and the Soviet Union, in preparing for such expeditions, become involved in immense duplications of research, construction, and expenditure? Surely we should explore whether the scientists and astronauts of our two countries, and that freedom is more enduring than coercion, and in the contest for a better life, all the world can be a winner. The effort to improve the conditions of man, however, is not a task for the few. It is the task of all nations, acting alone, acting in groups, acting in the United Nations, of plague and pestilence and plunder and pollution, the hazards of nature and the hunger of children are the foes of every nation. As man had such capacity to control his own environment, to end thirst and hunger, to conquer poverty and disease, to banish illiteracy and massive human misery, we have the power to make this the best generation of mankind in the history of the world, or to make it the last. The provision of development assistance by individual nations must go on, but the United Nations also must play a larger role in helping bring to all men
the fruits of modern science and industry. A United Nations conference on this subject held earlier this year at Geneva opened new vistas for the developing countries. Next year, a United Nations conference on trade will consider the needs of these nations for new markets. And more than four-fifths of the entire United Nations system can be found today mobilizing the weapons of science and technology for the United Nations decade of development. But more can be done. A World Center for Health Communication under the World Health Organization could warn of epidemics and the adverse effects of certain drugs, as well as transmit the results of new experiments and new discoveries. Regional research centers could advance our common medical knowledge and train new scientists and doctors for new nations. A global system of satellites could provide communication and weather information for all corners of the Earth. A worldwide program of conservation could protect the forest and wild game preserves now in danger of extinction for all time, improve the marine harvest of food from our oceans, and prevent the contamination of air and water by industrial as well as nuclear pollution. And finally, a worldwide program of farm productivity and food distribution, similar to our country's Food for Peace program, could now give every child the food he needs. New efforts are needed. If this Assembly's Declaration of Human Rights, now 15 years old, is to have full meaning, and new means should be found for promoting the free expression and trade of ideas through travel and communication and through increased exchanges of people and books and broadcasts. For as the world renounces the competition of weapons, competition in ideas must flourish, and that competition must be as full and as fair as possible. The United States delegation will be prepared to suggest to the United Nations initiatives in the pursuit of all these goals. For this is an organization for peace, and peace cannot come without work and without progress. The peacekeeping record of the United Nations has been a proud one, though its tasks are always formidable. We are fortunate to have the skills of our distinguished Secretary General and the brave efforts of those who have been serving the cause of peace in the Congo, in the Middle East, in Korea and Kashmir, in West New Guinea and Malaysia. But what the United Nations has done in the past is less important than the tasks for the future. We cannot take its peacekeeping machinery for granted. That machinery must be soundly financed, which it cannot be if some members are allowed to prevent it from meeting its obligations by failing to meet their own. The United Nations must be supported by all those who exercise their franchise here, and its operations must be back to the end. Too often a project is... I also hope that the recent initiative of several members in preparing standby peace forces for United Nations call will encourage similar commitments by others. This nation remains ready to provide logistic 
and other material support. Policing, moreover, is not enough without provision for Pacific settlement. We should increase the resort to special missions of fact-finding and conciliation, make greater use of the International Court of Justice, and accelerate the work of the International Law Commission. The United Nations cannot survive as a static organization. Its obligations are increasing, as well as its size. Its charter must be changed, as well as its customs. The authors of that charter did not intend that it be frozen in perpetuity. The science of weapons and war has made us all, far more than 18 years ago in San Francisco, one world and one human race with one common destiny. In such a world, absolute sovereignty no longer assures us of absolute security. The conventions of peace must pull abreast and then ahead of the inventions of war. The United Nations, building on its successes and learning from its failures, must be developed into a genuine world security system. But peace does not rest. Two years ago, I told this body that the United States had proposed and was willing to sign a limited test ban treaty. Today, that treaty has been signed. It will not put an end to war. It will not remove basic conflict. It will not secure freedom for all, but it can be a lever. And Archimedes, in explaining the principles of the lever, was said to have declared to his friends, give me a place where I can stand and I shall move the world. My fellow inhabitants of this planet, let us take our stand here in this assembly of nations and let us see that if we, in our own time, can move the world to a just and lasting peace, So I'm grateful that I have such a beautiful family, uh, both my parents, they have supported me, they always stand with me, and for them I'm just their daughter, it's just like as, as for other parents, they have a daughter, they love her, they take care of her, but then I have two uh, younger brothers, and as usual, brothers, they're cheeky, we still fight, we still argue, and my brothers, they just, they don't care what awards I'm winning outside and who I am, and if I'm an ambassador of something or UN Messenger of Peace. So when I won the Nobel Peace Prize and I came back to the hotel where we were staying and my little brother started saying that, look, you have won the Nobel Peace Prize, but it does not mean you become a bossy sister. 
So I always wanted to uh, get quality education to go to a good university and it was my dream and now that dream has come true that I'm going to Oxford. I really worked hard for it and, and I was so happy when I received the offer uh, and, and I'm excited to meet new people, to make friends, to learn. It is a great place of learning. the goal of this mission is to empower local leaders and local activists. So uh, we want to uh, increase that investment and, and also support local advocates as well, local girl advocates. So for that we have announced $3 million and we want to expand that group, uh, redouble our efforts and, uh, and make sure we can reach to as many local activists as we can because they are the real change makers in their community and when we empower them, through them we can bring change. It also includes e-learning and, uh, and, and other uh, improvements in the quality of education. So it is a, is a vast uh, um, project, it covers many areas, but our main goal is to empower local leaders. So this year I went on a Gulf Power Trip and I went to uh, America, Canada, then Nigeria, Iraq, and Mexico, and in these places I met amazing and incredible girls and I heard their inspiring stories. In Iraq I met a girl called Najla, and she was 14 years old when she was wearing her wedding dress and she took off her high heels and she escaped from her wedding, she ran away. And later on uh, her, um, her village was uh, captured by the extremist ISIS and she was actually attacked, but she did not stop and she's still continuing her education, she's speaking out, she has survived and she uh, she resisted all that she went through and, and the things that we cannot imagine for a second she has gone through all that but she's still fighting for education and she wants to be a journalist so these are the stories that inspire me but my aim is to bring these stories then to a global platform like the UN and allow these girls to meet their uh, country leaders their local leaders so that their voices can be raised. I'm just reminding them of their responsibilities, that they are holding the positions which, in which they are responsible for their people and for the future generation. And I remind them that they have to increase investment towards, uh, towards schooling, towards quality education. Otherwise, we will lose this, this future generation. This, this will impact not just the children, not just the girls, but all of us. So we have to invest those 130 million girls who are out of school. We have to support them. We have to stand with them, uh, make changes in the law, and also uh, take action. So I think men, they have to do a lot. And uh, my father uh, is an inspiration because uh, his five sisters could not go to school. So he decided that he would allow his own daughter to go to school to get her education and then to raise her voice. When we started campaigning in Swat Valley, when terrorism started and girls' education was banned, there were many other girls who wanted to speak out, but their parents, their brothers did not allow them. My father was the one who did not stop me. We have to believe in girls. We have to believe in our sisters, in our daughters, and allow them to be who they want to be. As my father says that, you do not have to do something. Just do not clip their wings. And if you do not take their wings, just let them fly 
and let them achieve their dreams. So men have to come forward. They have to support women, and and it's it's better for the for the whole economy. It's better for each and every one of us. Uh, it it will help the economy to grow even faster. It will improve the standards of living of each and every one of us. It will improve health, and it also benefits the children because when women are educated, they are more likely to care take care of their children and their education and their future. So I have seen a lot in my life from terrorism, extremism, uh, to and being attacked and I was at a point where I had to make a decision whether I want to continue my campaign for girls education or not. And, uh, and I think I have been away from my home in Pakistan for a long time and so going all through all this situation in my life, I have learned that uh, now surviving that attack, this life is for a purpose, and that is for the education of children. So it's only 70, 80 years that we live for, and why not live it for a good purpose? Why not live it uh, for a service that can help humanity, that can help the world? So I want to help as many girls as I can to make sure that they get quality education uh, and achieve their dreams. I believe deeply that there's a lot more that connects us than that divides us. And um, I think it's a really important value for me to try to listen both to what people say, but also to listen past their words to try to understand what they mean. I think one of the most important things a leader can do is both um, you know, share a vision, but include people in being able to have access um, to help improve, shape, um, and participate in that vision. Inevitably, in life, we are going to face challenges. So the first thing that I would say is make sure you are dedicated to your own improvement. Um, and work hard at being the best that you can be um, because that will always help you be better in facing difficult times. The second thing I would say is work on, at least for me, I needed to work on my confidence around that, uh, particularly when there are big challenges. It can feel like it's impossible. Um, I myself can get plagued with beliefs like, I don't know how to do this, I've never done this, I can't do this. You know, if you've done your work on being the best that you can be, for me it was really important to build my confidence that I could pull on that to help myself as I faced big challenges. And then the third thing I would say is like, none of us do this alone. And the more we can build the strength of the team in facing tough challenges, the better off we're going to be. I would definitely say um, to other people, you, you just have to be kind to yourself. Um, and, you know, I probably have more laundry that needs to be washed than I would like to admit. Um, but you just have to, like, 
you just have to be kind to yourself while you're trying to balance and juggle. Because my parents told me I have to be responsible. Because my first coach told me, you can do this. Because my teacher helped me see the choices. Because my coach treated me like everybody else. Because my boss showed me how to do a good job. Because a mentor believed in my potential. Is why I am where I am today. I'm swimming faster than I ever dreamed I could. I discovered that I could work as an artist. I led my high school team to two championships. I am a valuable employee. I have a career that I am passionate about. I will be whatever I want to be. What can you do? What can you do? Like all young people, youth with disabilities should grow up expecting to work and succeed. For more information, visit whatcanyoudocampaign.org. A firefighter, a college student, a mother, and I am an American soldier. I will always be ready for every storm and disaster that threatens my community. I will always be there to protect my neighbors, my family, and my country. We are the Army National Guard. We are the Army National Guard. We are the Army National Guard. Army National Guard. Visit NationalGuard.com to learn more about part-time service. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. That means it could be you, your dog walker, on your left. your cat jogger. With early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. My name is Randy Hampton, Public Information Officer for the Northwest Region of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. want to welcome you to uh, this uh, webinar this evening. Uh, my job is to make sure kind of the technology works correctly on, on the back end of things, um, so you don't want to hear from me much, but I'm going to turn it over to some of the folks that you are going to hear from tonight that are going to help you understand a little bit more about uh, turkey hunting in uh, Colorado. And uh, let's let's kick it over to Brian Posthumus from uh, CPW. Brian, uh, go ahead whenever you're ready, and I'll let you introduce yourself. Great. 
Thanks, Randy. Uh, my name is Brian Postumas. I'm the statewide hunter outreach coordinator for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, yeah, we'll be talking a little bit here. I'm going to pass it on next to Pepper. Pepper Canterbury from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I'm the Northeast Region Hunting and Angling Outreach Coordinator. Awesome. Thanks, Pepper. We're, we're very fortunate to be joined by lots of other folks from Colorado Parks and Wildlife, including Tracy Predmore. Tracy, uh, tell us where you're from and, and what you do. Hi, I'm Tracy Predmore. I'm the Southeast Region Education Coordinator, so I hunter, uh, handle the hunter outreach in uh, the Southeast portion of Colorado. Hi everyone, I am Kathy Braun, Southwest Region Education and Volunteer Coordinator based out of Durango. Pass it to Kathleen. I am Kathleen, the um, Education Coordinator for the Northwest Region of Parks and Wildlife and I cover the Hunter Outreach um, Program. And I'm gonna actually introduce our partners for tonight. So I am gonna pass it to Elena and Jamie. Hi everybody. Uh, I just want to start off by saying thank you for joining us. Um, turkey hunting is both a, huge, a passion for both Jamie and I. Um, kind of is what got us started into hunting. Um, so I was just uh, going to say we have five Onyx subscriptions. Um, if you don't know what Onyx is, it's a it's a map app for hunters, and you can track where you're going. You can download maps. You can see private and public land. Um, so we're going to do five trivia questions at the end of tonight's session, um, and the first person to answer it correctly, you'll be able to type in your answer um, in the Q&A section. So the first one to answer it correctly um, will win an Onyx card, so that's really exciting, an Onyx subscription. Um, so yeah, I'm going to pass it off to Jamie, and excited to learn more about turkey hunting with you all. I forgot to mention that, I forgot to mention that they are the Rocky Mountain Sports Women group. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that guys. I guess I forgot to mention it too. <laughs> now we're uh, um, I'll let Jamie talk about that though. We'll get her going. Yes. So um, can everybody hear me? I never do this right. Um, I am the co-founder of Rocky Mountain Sportswomen. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization based out of Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Um, and we are just striving to create a network of women um, who love just being in the outdoors. We do a lot of different events uh, online and in person. So if you go onto our website, RockyMountSportswomen.com, you can go to our events page and see everything that we have happening. Um, be sure to sign up for our newsletter and you'll be notified of any future events. Uh, we do lots of different things from fly fishing to archery to um, turkey hunting, our favorite, and uh, duck hunting, all sorts of things. So Give it, check it out, uh, sign up for the email list and you'll be notified of future stuff. Um, also on the note of the Onyx cards, I can't imagine hunting here in Colorado without them. Um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you can do a lot of e-scouting and all sorts of different stuff on Onyx. So definitely worth um, sticking around for. It's a pretty cool uh, subscription. So um, I'll hand yeah. it back to Kathleen and- oh, uh, oh, sorry. And then we have a couple of oh, announcements too that we'll we'll announce at the end too, um, as far as a future event and um, a couple other things for you guys too. So um, yeah, we'll pass it on to Kathleen and we'll get started. Okay, thanks guys. 
Um, and then Randy, I think we are set up so that if you guys at any point during the discussion tonight, you have a question, um, that's what they're running in the background to answer questions. If any of it um, is for the good of the group, we'll try to cover it. But make sure you go ahead and type in those questions as we go um, so we don't get too far ahead if um, you need some clarification. So welcome again. I'm actually going to start with a little bit of biology for um, the turkeys here in Colorado. So my challenge is to share my screen with you. So I'm going to attempt. Whoa. to share my screen. Okay, so for Colorado, welcome. We are uh, talking about turkeys here in Colorado and I'm not gonna read every slide and I'm gonna go fairly fast for time's sake, but just know here in Colorado, of the species across um, the United States, we actually have Rio Grande and Miriams here in Colorado um, for you to be able to hunt. If you ever hear hunters say they got a grand slam, they actually got all the subspecies um, and we are fortunate to have two here in Colorado. So that's kind of the layout. The Miriams are in green and the Rio Grande come in from the uh, east of Colorado. So the Miriams here in Colorado, one of the bigger things to note on them, they have a lot of white feathers um, at their back and on the tips of their tail. And that's, they're very white compared to some of the other species, primarily in the Western mountain regions of the United States. And that's just another layout of how we have them here in Colorado. You can get a few hybrids, but that's it. The Rio Grandes actually, um, they have longer legs compared to other species, hard to tell when they're on the ground, but they actually on the tips of their tail, that's a bit buffier. It's not as white as your Merriams have. Your Merriams are very white on that back. Um, and that's them kind of moving in. You'll see that Utah's got some close to Grand Junction. So we actually have them do come, they do come up the Colorado River for us, um, but those are your two subspecies. Just a little bit of nomenclature before we get going and start chatting about these birds um, without you knowing what we're talking about. But a male is a tom or gobbler, that's an adult male. A female is a hen. Um, a young male is a jake, so um, shorter beard, younger bird. And then the young of the year are actually called poults. So um, both male and female have a button spur. Typically the males will grow into a bigger spur, which becomes a trophy a lot of people like. Um, toms grow the beards that are modified feathers. They don't molt throughout their life. And so when you hear um, of a really good heavy tom, usually has a very long beard on him. Um, our hens actually though can also have a beard, um, which is almost 20% of the hens could have a beard. Male characteristics that we talk about, the tail feathers on that fan, those wings that they use, they'll actually strut around and drag them on the ground. They make a really good, strong sound. Um, spurs, but not necessary on all toms. I've seen some huge beards on some toms with zero spurs. Um, the beard, and then the gobbler part, which is that red, white, and blue head. These spurs are kind of typical of it growing out to that longer one where you hear somebody say, um, I can hang it on a tree, that's a really big spur. 
Um, but they don't actually always have that. And sometimes they have a spectacular beard. So that's just the beard, a side view on a tom with a beard. The gobblers have that iridescent coloring. Their feathers are gorgeous when you can catch the sun on them. Lots of um, people who fly fish you covet those feathers to tie flies, but they're very gorgeous birds and um, red, white, and blue head uh, is what to look for. We'll talk about this in safety later, but red, white, and blue is not what to wear in the woods when you're hunting because that's what you're looking for on these guys. The more excited that male gets, the more white his head actually turns. But um, you are looking for the red, white, and blue of a male. A hen won't have that. And then um, gives you a good aim sight at the base of the neck when you can see all that color. Um, this is just the basics, or the best part of this slide is to show that solid tail. An adult, mature gobbler has a tail that's even. That rainbow on the top has an, um, is even in um, length. So occasionally there's a feather missing, but typically, an adult bird is gonna have a, 